OTB AM. The way in which Chelsea phrased it was bizarre. It's like, we're going to get rid of him, but he's going to really, really help us. Potter seems like a nice guy, and maybe that was his downfall in the end. OTB AM. Live, weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave, or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. Alright, you're very welcome along. It is Thursday morning of Holy Week. We forgot yesterday was the day that uh, Judas kissed Jesus and, and the betrayal happened. Oh, where are you going with this? I actually don't know. <laughs> you can you can fill in the rest of that story yourselves out there if you want. Yeah. No, nothing bad came of that anyway, did it? No, in the end, you know? No, not at all. 2,000 years of people killing each other in uh, the name of righteousness. And that's why we have sport, folks. It's war without the bullets. I wonder did George Orwell actually mean that or was he actually taking the piss a little bit? Was there like a deep-seated sense of irony? He was like, here, I'm going to write this thing and everybody over here is going to lose their shit over it. Mm. Like, I think so. Or, you know. Was it Jesus rose again on the Sunday, so allegedly, and uh, Rory could rise again? Is that we're trying to find a sporting well, link here? When, no, when is I mean, next major? Bernard Langer, Bernard Langer, when he won, was like, uh, so he won his second one. I was actually, I, I fell down a Bernard Langer YouTube wormhole yesterday as he talked about his personal relationship with Jesus. And basically, he won the Masters as a 27-year-old, and he was married to a beautiful woman, and the camera pans to his wife, who's there beside him, nodding. And I don't think she actually speaks in the five minutes that I watched, but it's like a piece of camera from 2001 where he's talking about how he met Jesus. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to... And uh, so he was world number one golfer, 27, was a millionaire, and obviously he just won the Masters. And... Um, Somebody invited him to Bible study, and I can't even remember. It was John three three. If there's anybody in the comments who's a good biblical scholar, I suspect there might not be at this hour of the morning. But if there is, then you can tell us what that Bible. Something about knowing Jesus. Oh, it, it was like um, you need to, you need to, you need to, you must be born again. Basically, was it you? You're born once, and then you must be born again into. It. And this was the moment where the penny dropped for him, to the point where when he wins and he's in the butler cabin afterwards, putting on the green jacket, he's breaking down in tears because it's Easter Sunday. Jeez. I remember. Uh, so this is obviously this is obviously his second victory, which a, a master's historian slash somebody with Google in front of them might be able to tell us the year there quickly. Okay, Google, when did Bernard Langer win his second? Sometime in the 80s, right, later. Um, was it even, was it the 90s? There's a big gap anyway. Um, I just remember thinking, this is mad. Like, he, he genuinely felt like Jesus had guided him through. It's, it's pretty good that you could call on your own personal Jesus to win golf tournaments. Handy as it turns out, yeah. Not yeah. bad. You won in 85 and 93. So the 93, if you check back, he's totally emotional because it's Easter Sunday. And then he brought it up again. It's like, yeah, Easter Sunday. So there's, I mean, I don't know. I think that there's like the, that Bible group in the Masters. They're the ones you want to put your money on this week because they all feel like they've been chosen. The, the, the Easter's got to do with the cycle of the moon, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Isn't everybody? Is everybody? Mm-hmm. Is there always a full moon Easter? Is that what it is? I don't know. No, I, I doubt it. I, I stopped paying attention to all the... Um, the rationale behind all this stuff a long time ago and so you know if you again the, the, the Bible students slash lunar experts they can't all be chosen though that's the thing so there's well they someone. all think they are yeah, that's, that's the bit They'll and if you're not it's it like you know one of my buddies was so it was close yeah 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 the, the Passover thing just passed over me and landed on them that's a lesson it's a learning lesson if they don't win mixing a few stories here together unfortunately yeah Jesus morning 
How are you, Colm? <laughs> Colm's here. Shane is here. If you want to get in touch, uh, <laughs> you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream, but you've got to be signed in and you have to be subscribed to our channel, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. The first time a Bible refer- verse has been referenced? On the show, yeah, I don't think so. for, no. sure, yeah, for sure. You never know. Come here. Last night was just a, a humble Wednesday, right? I think we can all agree on that. Humble. Seismic news. David Moyes on the brink at West Ham for the second time. Manchester United beat Brentford when Brentford showed far too much respect to United. Frank Lampard mm. is going to come back for the second time as well. And all that side last night in the sporting world, football particularly, was a tale of two hat tricks. One from Karim Benzema in El Clasico as Real Madrid hammered. Barcelona and two was to my left here Shane Hannon mm. talk us through your hat trick last night uh, and also sorry I need to put this in the headline because it will bury lead stripped of the captaincy mm. scored a hat trick oh put it Shane please so yeah why always me I should have had a t-shirt why always me when I scored the third didn't um, so the, the stripped of the captaincy thing was a misunderstanding so uh, I, as I usually do before the football play match man. threw on the number seven jersey Threw on the armband, got ready to lead the team out, and then I hear the uh, the, the manager Deezer called out, um, said Jimmy Trainer, you're the captain. So walking out, I'm pissed off, and I there you, there you go, there's the armband. Um, and I said I'm not going to say anything until after the match. I'm going to be a leader and not not bring this up, not make an issue until after the match. Um, turns out after the match, the manager had forgotten that I was there and uh, had forgotten that I was there to, to take the armband as I usually do. Um, but as Michael Jordan said, I took that personally. And um, yeah, it led to an onslaught of goals in a 5-2 win in the cup quarterfinal. Right, so he's so going to do this again. If it, it worked once, Shane, it's going to work again. Yeah. Well, I came home from Dublin yesterday and, and uh, after work and visualised it. I actually came in to the house to my brother and I said, I was tired after a long day at work, driving up, and up from uh, Dublin. And I said, I'm either going to play crap, uh, just before I went out to the match, I'm either going to play crap today mm. or I'm going to score a hat-trick. The lack and, uh, of thinking time available to you. That it actually benefits you ultimately. Hundred percent. My last hat trick I spent the night before in the nightclub. How many hat tricks have you scored? I've scored a few. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm aware that there was actual sport last night that we'll get to, but I am interested. Uh, your three goals. Mm. What, what kind of goals do you uh, score? Diagonal run off the last defender in ball in behind. The first two were quite similar. Nice little finishes past the goalkeeper. Third one was one of my striking teammates, Paul Smith, who used to play in the League of Ireland. Smithy, to a decent shirt, degree. Shirt. Took a shot back out to me. Took a touch and rifled past the keeper. Look, it's a team sport, lads. But I mean, I visualise it. Like Rory McIlroy visualising getting the green jacket off Scotty Scheffler in the butler's cabin. I visualised the hat-trick last night. Very good. Made it happen, so. Um, you're a, a, a big man, good touch, number nine? Yeah, number nine. Now, it was kind of, kind of playing on the wide of the front oh, three last night. Right. Which kind of works for me. You can, kind of, you can almost yeah. teleport those little runs in behind. I watched the, the offside trap as well. When I found out you played football and played football to a, a good level, ah, well, convinced decent. convinced you were a midfielder. Really? You've centre mid written all over you. I've played centre mid before. I have played centre mid before. The, now, leg, the legs are going. Having completed going, yeah. one hat-trick and seen the other, mm. who did it better? Ah, Shane Hannan or Karim Benzema? Benzema was playing Barcelona. I was playing... No, Kim, no, but Kim the Kim actual goals. But the actual goals. Oh, mine, obviously. Modesty is... Modest, striker, you're not a striker if you're, if you're too modest. If anyone out there has some sort of footage of any of these goals, I'd love to see it because Shane has complete carte blanche to do what he wants here in the description of these goals. Yeah, he could be saying anything he wants. I would love to know which is better. I should have said halfway line. Who are we playing? Sorry, just to give them a shout out. Killy Law. A good team as well. It was 2-2 with six minutes to play. Oh, nice. So we, we, I scored the first two goals, 2-0 up. Then they got back to 2-1 for half time. We, uh, we conceded then with six minutes left, 2-2. You're thinking this is going extra time. 
but we uh, we managed to pull away. Sounds like a good episode of Dream Team. Good game. Not great that your manager didn't spot you in the changing room beforehand. <laughs> just just didn't unless think about he it. did, yeah. it was like, I know what I'm going to do. He needs a bit of a boot up the hole. So, well, it worked. Uh, right, we do have a pair of tickets to give away to the uh, Heineken Champions Cup quarterfinal at the Aviva on Good Friday, which is obviously tomorrow. Uh, Leinster against Leicester. The best live comments will win two tickets. Now, you've got to be able to go to the game and you have to be able to get in touch with us afterwards um, for us to be able to email you the tickets. Uh, so, um, if you want to go to Leinster Leicester tomorrow night in the Aviva, the best live comments, as picked by Shane? Yes. You don't have to be nice to me in the comments this morning yeah. because I'm picking Just it. Something yeah. that basically makes Shane smile at least. Hopefully laugh. Yeah. would be great. Laugh would be fantastic. Uh, and also make sure you're on Twitter and have your Twitter DMs open so that we can contact you. That's crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So you, you mentioned, I'm going to just go run through some of these headlines on the back pages of the tabloids. It does look like, so uh, West Ham were 2-0 down inside 15 minutes last yeah. night and ended up losing 5-1. They had a lot of chances themselves, but Newcastle absolutely destroyed them. Newcastle looking pretty good for the top four. And maybe even they're going to finish ahead of Man United, even though Man United went spent a quarter of a billion last summer. <laughs> Who could have predicted that, Colm? Who could have predicted that? <laughs> oh, sorry, I did. Uh, we were there about a month ago and it didn't look like it was happening, but please, proceed with the uh, Yeah, I, I, I didn't think it would happen after they... It hasn't happened yet. ...in no. Casemiro and... Anthony and uh, who else did they sign? Uh, Lissandro Martinez. Mm. Bluest the colour, uh, Luis Enrique. Uh, Enrique wants the Chelsea job. I mean, you know, I wish I wish we could quote Junior Soprano without having to beep it out. But anyway, bluest the colour. Enrique wants the Chelsea job, and it's a picture of lamps. Lamps gets caretaker role. Tiny picture of lamps. Bad for the ego. Big picture of lamps on the back of the mirror. Frank Job. Sacked, but now he's back. Legend Lampard set for Blues hot seat at Easter. He is he is truly the Jesus Christ in this. He is risen from the well, dead. How many Jesuses can we find in sports today? Lampard is back at the bridge, and then it's uh, Rashford and Sancho. Sancho, Sancho, mm. not not quite there. No, not last night. Sancho is more like one of the the um, four four. Uh, who are the ones who write the gospels? I thought you were going to say the, the four wise men, and I was going to. Right. Four, what are the apostles who wrote the gospel? Four gospels. The four, the well, there's, there's Matthew, a name Mark, for Luke, and John. I know the names, but what, there's a thing that there's, oh. a, there's a, a collective noun for gospel writers who were also apostles. My religious knowledge has, has deserted me. We're chiseling off the plaque of uh, forty years of um, heathenism. Sorry, Lampard is back at the bridge. I can't understand this. Look, mm. blues back is the back of the uh, the star, and there's also a he massive is picture. laughing. What? All the way to the bank, he's laughing. Are they are they going to give him some kind of role in the hierarchy? Is it like a club yeah. ambassadorial role? So he's now part of them forever, and he's like he's coming back, and he's. What's in this for lamps? Because best case scenario, they win the Champions League, just like Roberto Di Matteo did eleven years ago, and maybe they finish about sixth. Mm. Right? What happens then? Because he will ultimately be replaced by a permanent manager, which increasingly, you know, could be Luis Enrique, according to reports yesterday lunchtime, which would be an exciting appointment. He's not going to get the job full time again. Surely, it's only well, two years. It's only three managers ago he was the manager. It'd be a social job then, wouldn't it? So, here's, here's but what, but job, what's you Lampard's well goal? You, you say straight to the bank, right? Look, maybe Lampard is you know financially motivated here. Maybe it's a very, very uh, attractive looking package he's been given here. But he strikes me as a guy who doesn't really need it. Doesn't really strive yeah. it. I mean, so what does he want after? He doesn't this? need the money. Where, where is he going after that? Is it West Ham? Like West Ham fans aren't the biggest fans of Frank Lampard. Ah, they get over that pretty you know? quickly. I think. Does he go there? Uh, so Leicester, just just tease it out. You've 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 given him a victory in the Champions League. Yeah, this is best case scenario, of course. Okay, but uh, what like, happens then? 
Well, what happens then? Is a Champions League winning manager and it's on his TV and he can do whatever he wants? Well, Roberto Di Matteo got the Chelsea job permanently. Yeah, but Roberto, Roberto Di Matteo was a uh, lesser standing in world football than Frank Lampard, who has much bigger name recognition by virtue of the fact that he played for England 80-odd times. Like, Roberto Di Matteo never really made it beyond that brief stint and was clearly a caretaker manager and was like, they couldn't wait to get him out the door. With Lampard, he's obviously a club legend. So, just just to... I, they're not going to win the Champions League. I don't think they're going it's to win Real the Champions League. next. I think they're going to get knocked out at that stage. Um, I don't think Frank Lampard's a particularly good manager at the moment. But from his perspective, all of a sudden he's relevant again in world football and this gets him into the, the conversation for the England job. Say, say he was to take a job in the back room at uh, Chelsea in some kind of academy role. He's positioned to get the under-21 gig which Lee Carsley is apparently going to give up or is, is talking about giving up and there's a possibility he might give up after the Euros and then he gets that job and he's an actual successor. If, if he can just re-establish that he's able to manage at this level in a short period of time, it's a massive shot in the arm for a career that looked like it had completely run its course as a manager. Uh, I don't think the ego would allow him to go behind the scenes. I'd be sceptical if he took a, a step mm. down. But the, the you go behind the scenes the way Southgate did and you learn They're your trade at the under-21s. John Terry's doing that at the right. You see, the thing with the difference between Lampard and Southgate is Southgate was uh, you know, a fine defender, like really well-respected for Aston Villa and Crystal Palace and Middlesbrough. Did a great job, but no Frank Lampard in terms of his impact on global football. So you're taking this guy who's so used to the status that he has ever since Harry Redknapp defended him in that press conference at West Ham in the 90s. Mm and skyrocketed in terms of status and fame and how, how did his managerial career yeah go? but like what's his echo chamber like like who, who's he surrounded by people probably telling him he was hard done by you know when he was Chelsea manager he, he probably argued that he assembled the squad that won the Champions League in 2021 under Thomas Tuchel he probably feels that he had a tough gig at Everton he himself said he was battling all sorts of stuff on and off the field he probably feels like look back what I did with Derby got to the playoff final I did well there so is he going to go from once again Chelsea manager to going to the coaching staff at Chelsea? No, I'm not talking about the coaching staff. I'm talking about like a head of academy or head of under, underage. It's, so It's just not public and, facing enough. Well, but with the aim of getting the England, the same role within the England setup. And maybe he just goes to, maybe there is no need because that the times coalesce perfectly. So you take mm-hmm. Chelsea over, stabilise the ship, stop maybe get them scoring some goals and then all of a sudden in the summertime the England under 21 job is available and like I think this is a massive shot in the arm with almost no risk I think it's great for Lampard and I don't not sure if it makes too much sense for Chelsea like he knows the club sort of this totally different regime like as Thomas Tuchel said he doesn't recognise the club that he left with new owners um, and Bruno Sauter did well unless he really doesn't want the job mm. uh, Lampard like, I don't know what, how much of a positive difference he's going to make at this stage he's probably still very scorned over the Everton situation he only left in January Look, I'm looking at Di Matteo here his managerial record Like he managed two clubs before Chelsea you know, way down the ranks like MK Totten's first West Brom for two years Experience. then he got the Chelsea gig but as soon as he won the Champions League he got the gig permanently and he was gone then in autumn and who did he manage after that Schalke and Aston Villa it's, it's bit, uh, that, that's what I'm saying so he went from Chelsea Champions League to Schalke to Aston Villa when Villa weren't in a very great state at all and I'm just trying to envision this time next year who is Frank Lampard managing I don't know what this, it's a very odd career see, path. I've never seen this happen before where a manager is so quickly reappointed after being sacked the exception probably being David Moyes yeah. when he left West Ham and came back again 
If you look at Chelsea's remaining fixtures, this is where it gets difficult for Lampard. They still have to play Manchester United, Brentford, Arsenal, uh, Man City, Newcastle. Their last two games in the league are Man City away and Chelsea and uh, Newcastle at home. So like, it could go badly for Lampard, but it can't be any worse than it was under, under Potter recently. So surely there'll be that new manager bounce and he'll he'll be the, the saviour and all the rest. I don't know. I think it's a good move for Lampard. Yeah, as you say, he wants to be back in the... If you're not talking about him, he's not going to get other jobs. So he's back in the headlines. What's, no, he's not. Yeah, what's the what's the downside? I mean, the downside is that obviously it is a complete shambles and there is interference in team selection. But he obviously is there for such a short period of time that he can probably tell them all to butt out. Um, I do think it has the possibility of restoring him to conversations about any of the vacant positions that are out there, which don't, which doesn't exist at the moment. Nobody's thinking Frank Lampard would be great for any of the available club jobs. I haven't seen anybody link Lampard with Leicester, for example. No. Well, Crystal Palace is another option in the summer when Roy Hodgson's own interim stint will finish unless he decides to stay on or they offer it to him. But he was in contention for the Palace job before he took Everton and he could go there. Run the blaze. Is he a good manager though? Mobile. I, I, I don't think he... I don't think there's been enough um, sample size to show he's had short stints I all think three the sample times. size is... is is ample. I think the bit where Thomas Tuchel comes in and immediately fixes all the problems they had, the defence was shocking when Lampard was there. He was blaming individual errors as opposed to having a system in place to stop the team conceding goals. Tuchel walks in, draws the first couple of games, nil all, and all of a sudden everybody knows what their job is. I think that's an unfair comparison between Tuchel and Lampard. Well, it's still, but uh, sorry, it, it literally... It literally isn't an unfair comparison because they were both the Chelsea managers with exactly the same squad. You're going to say, oh, Tuchel's far more experienced. But the ball game is to be the best manager available. And if you're, if you're any team who is trying to sign a manager, you're, you're looking around and you're going, who is the next Tuchel? How do I find somebody who's going to rise to that level as opposed to Lampard, who just blamed everybody yeah. instead of actually taking responsibility himself? Mm. I, I Look, I'm not the biggest Frank Lampard fan as a manager. Like, I... I'm unconvinced but I'm also not totally convinced that he's a terrible manager yet I haven't seen it like he did I'll give him one thing he did well at Derby he did do well yeah. and it's, that, that's a while ago but it is forgotten and he kept everything up last year when they looked doomed this time last year we were talking about them as going down and he kept them up now people out there are anywhere will say well he got them into the position too or he certainly continued the decline when he took over in Everton but he did ultimately keep them up and at Chelsea, he did all right for a while. He did okay. See, what Lampard's going to do is point out that uh, things didn't get worse. So they're currently 11th on 39 points. But Palace behind them are nine points off. So they're not going to finish any lower than they currently are. Yeah. So he's going to say, well, I kept them 11th or, or I took them up a place. It's, it's not going to get any worse. It's handy for him. It's definitely handy. I'm just wondering, uh, where does he go from, from here? England. In the summer? England. I, I, I'm not just so Why sure not? about that. Why not? Why, why would big he, job like what, are you saying no, are you saying you saying 21s yeah. I don't think it's big enough for him but it's the England job you get the England job after doing that you're the number one contender you're anointed as the natural successor you go to whatever the tournaments are you hang around like a bad smell you know whatever like there's a, there's a, a England, the English FA have definitely looked to a point from within they, they've realised the folly of their ways appointing whatever the, the most famous celebrity slash uh, Vogue's choice was and it looks like they're a relatively well run organisation at the moment maybe that's just a complete facade because Southgate is such a good handler of all of those scenarios and the situations like I don't know what's wrong with that? Well Southgate's going to go probably after next Euros he's been there quite a while so say if he does go and he had the option of 
Frank Lampard after a year with the 21s or an available Graham Potter for example Eddie Howe <laughs> or Eddie Howe dream you're, you're taking the latter two there aren't you like what does, what's Lampard going to do with the 21s that's going to impress the hierarchy of England so much other than availability at the right time well, that's first off, and secondly, is that we've sent you in a lot of training courses, and we've we've analysed your preparation, and we've you've evolved as a manager, and you've been you've got to, you've got to understand the cut and thrust of or the ebb and flow rather as opposed to cut and thrust of um, only seeing the squad whenever you see them, and also you're you're one of our former legends. There's pictures of you all around this place. Mm. Yeah, that's the one. I think that's the one thing going from for England is that you'll be able to gather the players and say, look, I was great, and I think you're great, and that might help the part-time-ish nature of international football versus club football. I don't think there's Possibly. any, any whatever about the, the small sample size, there's no body of evidence that Graham Potter is the right man for that job at all. No. It, this thing about club legends sneaking into jobs without that much experience, like I was watching John Terry on with Stephen Hendry on his YouTube channel there recently and Terry was saying like, even in at, at Villa and Craig Shakespeare is such a better coach. He was like, Craig Shakespeare was such a better coach than me. Um, that he was like I'm, I just want to be a manager now I do want to be a coach oh, these lads just skip into jobs like Lampard shouldn't have been at Chelsea when he was the first stint um, they, yeah. they seem to skip the pecking order which is fair enough because of their stature but it's a bit unfair it is unfair but I wouldn't blame Lampard for that it's not his fault no, he of was course. a brilliant player and he did extraordinary things in his career and it's not his fault that uh, club owners make strange decisions so I think fair play to him for taking the opportunity and I, like, he, he, like he, I'd say the temptation to to turn down the Chelsea job was probably in his mind because he probably did feel it's too early for me. He still took it. Like it's still a brave decision to make. Like I look, I understand. Like there's a, I understand why Lampard is not rated as a manager. I get it. Like you look at the the three clubs straight away, and you say, look, he could have done more at each of them. I think I'm looking at the positive side. I think he did okay at least at all three at some point so I don't think he's a complete disaster or write off OK well then in which case he's absolutely the right candidate for the England job and it would be a good spectacle I think we should we could all get behind Frank Lampard I could certainly get behind that as a. I would uh, enjoy I would absolutely enjoy it. also sorry David Moyes keeps on referring to last season uh, and how well they did they did extraordinarily well last season he gets criticised for this but West Ham finished 7th in the Premier League and I, I completely forgot about this they got to the semi-final of the Europa League yeah I be keeps on referencing last year and people aren't happy with it. He last he's set to be the next to go. He could be the fourteenth Premier League manager. Should he be sacked? I don't I don't know. It tends said. to be ten or eleven o'clock in the morning just after we've come off air. So we're morning. we're waiting with yeah. bated breath to find out the exact news. And sorry, JP Wright voice actor says, Can we get some appreciation for Newcastle instead of constantly hearing about Monaghan? Best defence in the league and the whole back five cost less than Van Dyke. Eddie Howe has worked wonders. Eddie Howe, excellent manager. We do tend to focus on the, like, the, the negative. So like West Ham last night obviously being the story, but then you forget the Newcastle 5-1 win away from home, which is yeah. fair enough. A routine, taking care of business. You know, it's a pressure game. The, the, all that travel, obviously. See Callum Wilson's Macarena? So difficult for them. He did it twice. Oh, it was fantastic. Um, Shit, he, he does the podcast with Mikel Antonio, the footballer's podcast. Oh, yeah. And he told him on the podcast that he was going to do that if he scored. And he followed through on his word. And my word, did he piss off the West Ham fans? A little tribute to Lee Sharp. Great to see. Class. Um, Newcastle. This first time Newcastle have won four in a row for eleven years. They're flying it, mm. flying it. Also, sorry, uh, we've had to mention Denise Sullivan's going to win her hundredth cap this Saturday against the USA. Mm. What a player! One of Cork's finest. Mount talk, Rushmore contender. Talked about it um, on yesterday's show. She's got there faster than Robbie Keane did, and obviously. Uh, as we said Robbie was a teenage prodigy it's a sensational performance and, and Kathleen was pointing out that um, when she talks to uh, people in America they're like this This is a superstar she's like absolutely world class and probably probably because she plays in America instead of England doesn't quite get the same level of kudos from the Ireland fans as Katie McCabe does but um, if we're going to do anything in the World Cup it'll be on the back of 
brilliant performances from Denise O'Sullivan and Katie McCabe. So, yeah. But that's definitely something the Aviva that I've noticed. You see the Centurions kind of going around in the screen around the stadium, which is a really good idea uh, by the FAI or Ireland Football or whatever they're called now. Uh, but yeah, certainly Denise O'Sullivan being added to that list, well deserved. Right, it is 7.54 and I'm delighted to say Alan Quinlan is with us again this morning. Alan, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, lads. Good, thanks, Joe. Back from France? Back from France, yeah. We uh, we took the horse to France. Uh, it was great. It was a great trip, yeah. We went to Nantes, La Rochelle and Bordeaux and uh, in, in between we got to see... Uh, we got to see La Rochelle and, and Gloucester on Saturday night. So Rog wasn't too happy with me. He thought I was bringing him bad luck with the, the nearly lost that against Gloucester. Gloucester were brilliant. Um, La Rochelle, not so good, I suppose, on, on the night. But uh, yeah, it was a great trip. Um, Ireland are going to be in Nantes uh, for the, the second pool game against against Tonga. And um, the first game is in Bordeaux against Romania. So, so come September, it should be fairly busy with Irish fans there. Nantes is a class city. Um, I, I don't know if ever, anybody's ever been there before, but the cycle lanes are actually in the middle of the road. <clears throat> they prioritise the cyclists, oh, as opposed yeah. to, and it's uh, and you're kind of a little bit scared on the bike, going, "I'm in the middle of the road here." But the cars are like, "Yeah, no, that's fine. We appreciate the fact that you're there." We just showed the footage of you um, wandering onto the pitch at La Rochelle. Is there just like a you know everybody recognises you? Off you go, or did you have to get special dispensation? No, we. Um we, we got some passes. Rog organised them. I was a bit sceptical about whether they'd actually be there in in the, uh, in the first place. But uh, he assured me on Friday that it was all sorted. So um, when I went to get the, the passes for the rest of the crew that were with us, there was just, there was just one there initially for me. And uh, then the girl said it was her mistake. They, they were It was actually five there. So there was five of us on the trip. And um, yeah, I, I did. I, I, I we we got looked after unbelievably well. The atmosphere there is just phenomenal. I couldn't believe the atmosphere. It was just there were constant singing, chanting. Um and I decided Rog said to me, Come down and meet me before the game and I kinda of wandered down and he was on the edge of the pitch and I, I ended up meeting him. He was quite relaxed. Um so it was lovely. It was great to see that and see it from from a French rugby point of view, the whole atmosphere and what I suppose we've always talked about um, home advantage for French teams. And, you know, I played there many times against French teams and right across France. And you can see why, what the culture is like and, and what it means to people in these smaller cities, if you like. Um, the rugby at the weekend is everything. And the drum roll, the, the, the colour, all that kind of stuff was just phenomenal. So I was I was blown away by the atmosphere there. But... La Rochelle didn't play too well, um, so he wasn't too happy. Donica Ryan was sitting beside him uh, during the game. There was a coach's area, and he sat outside the box um, in a couple of seats right at the back. And um, yeah, it was a, nerv- a nervy game for them. They need to certainly need to be a lot better this week against Saracens. It was really nervy. It was one of those performances, though, that sometimes at the end of the tournament you look back and you go, "Oh, that was the one where." You know, they, a, a team in a football tournament wins on a penalty shootout against a supposedly inferior side because they're like, were they a little bit complacent? Maybe is that is that in a way that they won't be against Saracens, for example? Possibly didn't protect the ball, a lot of loose passes, offloads, and I suppose to maybe there was a bit of complacency. The expectation was maybe I even had it that you know this would be um a strong win for, for La Rochelle. To be fair to Gloucester, they were brilliant and they got opportunities in the game that kept them in it and they kept um 
probably getting boosters, confidence boosters that we're here and, uh, you know, we're, we're playing well and we, we're still in this game and uh, their work rate, enthusiasm, energy was, was phenomenal. So, you know, I've had those games, we've all had them where you go to France or you go away in the Champions Cup and you're expected to win or even at home when you get probably an underwhelming performance and I think it's a good point you make that sometimes those are ones that kind of define um, your season in a, in a sense that you win win kind of ugly. You don't want to be disrespectful to Gloucester because um, they were brilliant. Um, Lewis Rees-Samus, seeing him up close, the pace, uh, he caused them all sorts of problems. But I think if, if La Rochelle looked back in the game, um, they had lots of errors and, and loose passes and and moments in the game where they just didn't execute and poor kicking, a lot of stuff went on and I, and I felt, God, this is going to be one of these games because, you know, in the back of everyone's minds, um, with the way the, the Champions Cup is kind of panned out and, you know, similar to, to, to Leinster, La Rochelle will be, you know, they had a path all the way to the final here. So you're thinking round 16, win that. You then have a home quarter, home semi and, um, we were all thinking La Rochelle, Leinster again in Dublin, but um, La Rochelle needs to be a lot better, I think. They wouldn't have frightened anyone at the weekend, but it was really important. They just got to win, to be fair. Roger's obviously a tracksuit manager as opposed to a suit and tie manager. Quinny, are you impressed up close and personal watching his demeanour, his um, prancing up and down the sideline? Is he, is he vocal or, or were you surprised by his style? Yeah, um, I was surprised he was so calm, to be honest. Um I did look down at him a good bit as regards um, when when Gloucester scored or when something went wrong. There was no real animation, or you know, um, obviously he's had a few a few uh, issues on the sideline with different coaches over the years. But um, I watched every time one of the La Rochelle players came off the field in that second half, and he was it was kind of like a Jurgen Klopp type um, hug and and pat in the back and. He was very calm. Um, I'm not saying I'm surprised at all at that, because, um, but it was just, I felt the tension. The crowd were in, unbelievably tense. Dunica Ryan was kind of um, standing up and out of the seat a lot, you know, with, with some of the stuff that went, the mistakes they made. But um, no, he's very impressed. I, I tell you, I couldn't believe, well, I could believe it. When we, when we left the ground, um, the amount of people that are chasing him down for photos and, and, patting him on the back and following him everywhere. So it took us a long time to get out of the ground on Saturday night. But um, they love him there and they love, I suppose, Donnick Ryan as well. He's done a great job too. So um, they'll certainly need to be a lot better. But it was it was definitely eye-opening, Shane, to see the atmosphere and what it means to people. And I kind of knew that from playing there, but just to see it as a, as a not working in any capacity, just being there as a spectator at the game, it was the atmosphere was incredible. Even when they were going poor, um, the crowd were going crazy, singing, chanting. Um, great atmosphere to play. Yeah, I, I can see why it might be a side of pilgrimage for a lot of uh, Irish rugby fans and just Irish sports fans generally over the next couple of years. We just need to put the um, final word on Munster. Obviously, you've done a deep dive with Neve on the Red 78 podcast this week, which everybody can get wherever they get their podcast. Just search Red 78. Um, now that the dust has settled a bit, what's the level of disappointment that you feel about how Munster limped out of Europe last weekend? I think it's not just just out of Europe last weekend. I think it's the last three weeks that have kind of put a damper on things, if you like. With with um, 
it's I think it started with the Scarlets conceding 42 points in that game um, all good in the first half of that game in Cork in, in, in March um, then obviously losing to Glasgow and at the weekend then it, it was always going to be difficult for, for, for Munster going there with the power that the Sharks have but I think when you they've conceded 130 points and 18 tries in three games so that's that doesn't kind of give give a good indication or picture of the way they've defended. I think there's been a run from November right up to that uh, Scarlet's game that was very positive. The way they were playing completely change 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 view and in, in what they were doing last season or previous seasons around the attack. They're scoring a lot of tries themselves. I think they scored 16 tries in those three games. So. If you were kind of looking at it, you think, well, defend better, stop conceding tries and, and keep doing what you're doing in attack and things will be fine. But I think the reality, Jerry, is, and, and everybody knows this, um, they're still short on a bit of power. And when you come to kind of the championship end, end of season stuff, you're going to come up against teams who have all their internationals back, um, a lot of quality. And it does make a difference. If you have, um, if you're playing a team that has, seven or eight kind of regular seasoned internationals, current internationals, well, the quality kind of comes out. And if you look at that that Sharks team, and maybe again, their performance in, 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 in against the Scarlets in Wales the week before kind of hoodwinked people a little bit and said, well, they're playing poor and how interested are they and how cohesive are they and all that stuff. But they're back at home in 28, 29 degrees heat and... Um, they flex their muscles. So it's dis- very disappointing for Munster. It's not a surprise that they lost, I think, but some of the facets of the game are still disappointing. And, um, you know, the, the breakdown was a big issue. And a lot of that came down to, I think it wasn't all just solely they were overpowered. I think they were off it. They had probably, if you marked their players out of 10, the Munster players, you had probably five, six out of 10 performances where you need eight, nine out of ten to go away from home and win those type of games. Uh, okay, let's let's preview Leinster Leicester. Um how do Leicester go about stopping Leinster? Is there anything that they've seen from Ulster last weekend? Is there anything that they've seen recently, even at international level, when these players are playing for Ireland, uh, that Leicester can cling to and try and use as a means of getting into the game and then keeping the game alive? You still there, Alan? No, he's gone. Mm-hmm. We'll get him back in a second. Um, obviously, the Leinster-Leicester game. If you want tickets to uh, to the game, we have a pair to give away. Check out leinsterrugby.ie for tickets to purchase tickets. We've got a pair of tickets to give away to the best comment on the show this morning. I don't know how you're leaning so far. Mm, well, people being nice to me. That'll get you everywhere, do you know? Absolutely everywhere when it comes to this. So I see a few people already trying that that ploy. And let me just tell you, you're onto the right road. So uh, yeah, certainly keep going that way. I know they're, they're closing the top tier for the game, which is probably makes sense. It was a six-day turnaround from the last game. It probably didn't have much notice for people. It's Easter weekend, but still should be a decent atmosphere. You know? Yeah. Um, Alan, you're back. I am, sorry, earphones went on me there for some reason. I don't know why. No worries. I was just asking what the Leicester do to try and get into this game. Yeah, I don't know. Is there anything they can do as regards stopping Leinster? Well, it's very difficult to stop them. You've got to be on it for for for, for the full eighty minutes um, as regards your kind of work rate, intensity, all that kind of stuff. 
the most obvious ones and and lots of people will will kind of cling on to this one is slow Leinster down um, and physically um, get amongst them and and try and um, try and stop their flow because the tempo and the pace that they play with can just blow teams away. But we saw in the rain last week against against Ulster, uh, their kicking game was superb and not just. Um, the number of kicks they had, but the type of kicks, you know, the contestables, the territorial advantage they had in that game. So they seem to be a team that's, and this isn't a surprise, that can play play in conditions like that as well. They can play direct. They can have their expensive style to the game. Um, for, for, for Leicester, it's about physicality as well. You know, set piece. Maybe they might see some opportunity to go after to go after Leinster and that scrum force a few penalties but they have to be on it for 80 minutes and I just don't see it I think um, James Cronin Dan Cole and Montoya um, in the front row that's an area maybe that they might see themselves having a little bit of an edge or an opportunity to go after Leinster but when you have the Irish front row essentially it's probably me being disrespectful and I'm not trying to be but um, that that's a good Leicester front row their back row, you know, with Jasper Visa, Rafael and Liebenberg, I think they've got to really step up and play constant for, for, for 80 minutes. But it's just hard to see where they can stop Leinster because um, they're just an unbelievably balanced quality side who look like um, they can just turn it on when they, when they have to. Leicester appear to have this reputation almost, Quinny, as this purely kicking team which is maybe unfair but certainly under Wigglesworth that's the, the way in which they, they, they've they've gone um, when you have someone like Paul Ard in your ranks it, it helps as well but you'd imagine away from home as well that that will have some sort of an impact we were just discussing there the fact that the top tier is going to be closed but it'll still be a, a very much a home atmosphere for Leinster yeah it will and it's not unfair to say that um, they have this reputation of kicking because that's what they that's what they do uh, Van Portfleet the, the, the number nine kicks a lot for England I think in their game against Edinburgh on Friday night um, again you know they play a couple of phases and it slows down and it's box kick um, you know Leinster kicked a fair bit on, on Saturday but it's the, it's, the, it's the contestable kicks winning it back and, and gaining territory from that that are really important if Leicester do that well and if you kick well in, in, in a game and sometimes you criticise um teams kicking too much in games but if you kick well the stats show that you win games so I think um, Richard Wigglesworth will still want Van Portfleet to kick a fair bit but um, you know if I was playing Leinster if if I was preparing for this game and playing Leinster I think and you were trying to do something different it would be trying to attack try and play with a bit of abandonment if you like on occasions um, it'll be a similar approach, approach to what we saw from England. There's going to be aggression, intensity, pressure, line speed in defence. Um, will it be enough? I don't know. They've got to get a start early in the game, but um, I can't help but going back to that quarterfinal last year um, over in Leicester when Leinster just started the game so well. They blew Leicester away. I know Leicester came back a a bit in that second half, but there's there's a gulf uh, on paper here in the quality, and for Leicester, 
like I say, it's kind of state in the obvious. They've got to play for eighty minutes and really have a game, have bring a game plan and and an intensity that that shocks Leinster, which I don't see happening. Um, Scott Penny straight in at seven if Vanderflier is out, which we expect. I would imagine it depends what way um, Will Connors has been in training and stuff like that because um, obviously Will Connors was a couple of years ago was after jumping ahead of of Josh van der Fleer even um, and he's a quality player. It just depends what kind of training he's been doing and how he's been impressing the, the, the Leinster coaches but I would think that um, you know Scott Penny, what a player to have to come into the side. Um, he's a brilliant player, so much power um, every time he scores, he, he comes and plays. He scores tries. Uh, very physical player. Very lucky to have that co- kind of quality backup, aren't they? Someone like Scott Penny. For me, you would think, um, you know, he signed a new contract recently for another couple of years. Um, he's happy and comfortable to stay, and I think he's only started five games this year. So um, it's. It's obviously down to the, the culture and the, the team that he's playing with and the club that he's with, which is top quality and one of the best and probably not the be- not, if not the best in Europe. But what a player to, to have the ability to come in. I think it looks like it will be Scott Penny unless you know something different is happening behind the scenes with Will Connors and he, they've, they fancy him for, for Friday night. I think in a lot of people's minds, Quinny, we're hurtling towards uh, a Leinster-La Rochelle final. I know that's the hope of Leinster fans, maybe, to get that uh, element of revenge from last year. Uh, having watched Leinster recently and having seen La Rochelle in, in person last weekend, are you leaning towards that being the, the likely outcome? You have to be careful for what you wish for sometimes, Shane, because uh, you know if you looked at La Rochelle last weekend as a Leinster fan, you would say, God, yeah, we can, we, we, we're we way better than this and and you know, our quality and our 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 team and maybe we want revenge, but you know, it's uh it depends, I think, on what we saw last Saturday. La Rochelle need to be a lot better. Um I think they, they were the week before away to Bordeaux were very good and maybe they got a little bit complacent and maybe it's a mentality thing. We'll see and I know this weekend because Saracens will fancy fancy crack us at La Rochelle in, in their ground on, on, on at the weekend on Sunday. So um with the home advantage you think if Sarah if La Rochelle get through on Sunday, um then they're home in the semi finals, they play Stormers or Exeter on the other side. Um yeah, you would think so. It'd be a perfect kind of a perfect final, wouldn't it? It would create some incredible colour. I think La Rochelle fans would travel in their droves as well to Dublin, but it's it's just so hard. Um, the only ones that can trip Leinster up at this stage, I would think, is themselves. And again, I don't see that happening. I think they're pretty grounded, um, full of confidence, full of belief. And, you know, you've Gary Ringrose back this weekend, Caelan Doris. They're not bad players to come back into a side, are they? Um, so, yeah, it's... it's one, one last one for you, Quinny. One last one yeah. for you. Um, James Lowe's in the papers today talking about his diet on match day. Uh, pancake and smoothie for breakfast, steak sandwich or pasta for lunch, and then snacking the rest of the day to give himself the uh, the energy. What was your match day back in the day? Um, it depends what time it was. If they were the early kickoffs, the one o'clock ones, I hated those ones, or the half twelve ones in France. Sometimes um, you're kind of scrambling to to kind of even drag yourself out of the bed and have any sort of appetite. A bit of cereal, and then you're back for pre-match meal at half nine. 
quarter to ten, you're trying to eat chicken and pasta at that hour of the day. So those ones are tricky. The evening games are much easier because you get up, have breakfast, have a little bit of lunch, and then that pre-match meal would have been a half, three, four o'clock uh, with pasta and chicken. So I would have been, I would have always tried to traditionally eat a bit of you know pasta and car- load up on the carbs. Really, um, I like the idea of the steak sandwich, but I'm not sure if. If I would have had it on the day, but you can't beat a good old steak sandwich, can you? But um, maybe the steak anyway, and no it's all, bread. Yeah, it's all it's all about carbs, really, and the type of energy. From what I can remember of when I played, um, load up on the carbs. Uh, Leicester will need plenty of carbs for Friday night, but who who knows? They'll, they they might have a go. I tell you, I heard Visa, you know, the South African number eight. He's he's just a handful and. If they can get their forwards kind of rumbling a little bit, maybe that's where they, they, they possibly will fancy causing Leinster some problems up front, scrum, line out, malls, uh, and in those contact areas. But it's hard to see beyond Leinster, isn't it? All right. Quinny, we leave it there. Good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. Thanks. Alan Quillen there. As I said, you can get the deep dive on Munster's performance in the Heineken Champions Cup with Quinny and Neve Briggs on the Red 78 podcast. After the ad break, Tommy Walsh is going to preview Kilkenny versus Limerick. You're going to hear a clip in the break from the latest episode of The Hurling Pod where James Scale, Paul Murphy and Will are talking about the dark arts of the game. No better trio. The Hurling Pod is with Bort Gosh Energy, proud sponsors of the Senior Hurling Championship and the Legends Tour Series taking place in Croke Park. Back after this. OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off The Ball from here we go next game is Arsenal now. with the Gunners so close to ending their almost two decade wait for the Premier League title one of the best you'll see this season Liverpool are desperate for points as they try and salvage their season by qualifying for the Champions League we know how close Manchester City will be to Arsenal before that as at 2 o'clock Richie McCormick and Brian Kerr are in the gantry for their match at Southampton sensational finish live and exclusive Premier League football this Sunday on off the ball from 1 o'clock I have very wild dreams. <laughs> Lads who are part of the dark arts, like the dark arts now would be very much pulling at a lad's jersey. Um, like you saw Mikey Breen there and Stephen Bennett there a few weeks ago and he kind of stepping on his ankles and stuff. But like you can't throw a butter to hurl now. Like that'll be, you'll be banned for games if you do that. So it's very hard <laughs> to quote a night, very hard to be a bastard in the modern game. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Gail about it there, he knows. Go on, Scal. Talk about bastardry. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about bastardry. Yeah, you actually, uh, actually speaking of it, because I know I saw that question you sent it in earlier. Irlitanian was mentioned as one. That's not to say, like, I mean, that's not me quoting. That's Paul Aller. <laughs> Scal took a yellow card for Irlitanian against us one, a few years ago. Aller in a final 2012. Tanyan struck Richie Power with the hurl. And you got booked. I remember that. Do you remember you got booked? Red helmets. No, I went over. You were wearing yeah. a white jersey. He was wearing a maroon. Were you wearing yeah, a maroon scale? Is this what happened? What happened was um, Power scored a goal himself. Darkham came through. Darkham's coming through, and he took a shot. And yeah, and then it's, it's, and I saved it. And Power got the rebound. Is that right? Power got the rebound. Yeah, and Tanyan, himself and Tanyan jostled, and Tanyan hit him with the hurl. Yeah, but, and you uh, but I don't think he got him very good. But then Power went down, and I I, I went over just to help him up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the ref didn't like the way it helps him up. So like, for our uh, radio listeners, um, we managed to cut to a picture there of Scahill dragging Richie Power up by the the jersey. That's what he might have got booked for, and it might not have been a case of mistaken identity. Tommy Walsh, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Jared. How are you? Um, the dark arts. You 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 were never involved in any of that stuff. 
Well, I used to call them the dark arts. I just call them the arts, Jack. That's <laughs> 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 oh, right. Listen, it was a different game back then. Like uh, It was always slowing down the form, maybe that second or two before the ball came in. And if you were trying to do that to him, then sure, listen, you might have had an advantage. But as Paul said now, like, them days are gone because too many cameras around and um, you're gone to the line. It's like soccer. You can't slide, slide tackle in the Premier League anymore because... You know, if you're you're off that by that one second, VAR is in and you're probably off. And uh, it's the same with hurling, but it was the culture that was grew up in. Like you don't look to the referee for for support. You look after yourself, and it's the same with a forward. Forward came in, and as, as Paul was saying, we you know hit you a shot there just to to get to know you. You just took it and you got on with it, like and. It was part of the game. You did it in the garden when you're home, your brothers and sisters, and that like. So you expected no different in championship days, and. um they were enjoyable to the most part as well, Jer, because when you're getting into these battles with guys, they like it was like you expected out of him, he expected out of you, and no one got hurt. That's the main thing. Like there was no you, you weren't trying to hurt anybody or anything like that. It was just you know maybe could be anything really, but yeah, the arts. That's why I used to call him anyway. Um. Uh, the, the the bit of shirt pulling that they're talking about in in GA obviously I think um, it wasn't invented by James McCartan but he used to run out and he'd pull the the defender's jersey behind him as he was going he'd trip over and the referee would be like oh you've you've been fouled there as a corner forward I remember Dermot Ling telling us one time about um, going for a high ball with you and your hand was on his hurl the whole time until the very last second and all of a sudden the ball was in your hand I was like uh, the sleight of hand that none of us knew about but Dermot was like that was genius. Yeah, well, it wasn't, uh, it, like, basically the way I suppose most players uh, play the game when it, when the ball is in the sky, Jerry, is if you're on your own, the ball comes down and you catch it, you know, 100% of the time. If there's somebody on you and they're in front of you, you don't catch it. It's usually because there was something in the way, whether that was his hurl, whether that was his hand or whatever. So you just had to kind of free the path so that the ball came straight into your hand. That's the way it, Really, like when you're really, when it really boils down, if you look at anybody trying to catch a ball, whether they're a forward or a back, like it's all about making sure that that, you know, pathway come for the ball is is coming straight into your hand because otherwise it hits their hurl, hits their hand straight down into to the to the ground. But like I wouldn't, you know, like that that's a skill in the game. Like I, I'm not talking about hitting a person or striking their hurl or striking their hand. I'm just talking about position and everything in a way that the ball comes straight into your hand instead of his, you know, so we can call it dark arts if you want. I definitely wouldn't look at it like that because if I was in front of my man and I went up to catch it and he shoved, you know, me, my hurl, my hand out of the way so the ball went into his hand, I'd say fair play to him and I'd say very silly out of me to put myself in that position, you know. Would you be talking to the, you know, before throw-in when, the, when you're, the forward is coming over and you're shaking hands, would you be talking throughout the match, whispering to him, saying things in his ear, getting in his head, or is that not a done thing? Yeah, that was never a done thing done in, in Harlan to answer It's too fast because if you're saying that to your man and um, suddenly, like, it's all he has to do is get the ball and put it in the back of the net and uh, suddenly, like, you're the fool. So, it was too, I always found it too high risk. Like, um, plus you knew the guys. There was only five or six Kilkenny, say, Tipperary, Cork, Galway, you know. Lim- There's only so many teams at the top anyway. So, you knew them all pretty well. And there was no, I never saw an advantage to it anyway because a forward could just 
go past you. You know, you could be marking him like as Christy Ring used to say, like as a forward, you could be out of the game for 55 minutes in a 60-minute game back then. You could be out of the game for 55 minutes. You only have to hurl well for five minutes. And, and you know, you're the hero. So the, the defender then is, you know, in, in big, big trouble. Like he scored three goals. I think he was on Don Broderick or, for Limerick in, a, say, it was a Munster final many moons ago and Christie was out of the game for the whole game. Next minute scored three goals and, and Cork beat Limerick. So I never saw an advantage to talking to someone, uh, uh, Shane. It's just, and it wasn't the done thing too. Like you're geared by your environment as well. You're probably brought up to, to respect your opponent and it was all kind of, you know, everybody gives everything to win the game and you're, you you forget about it then once the game is over. So if there's words spoken, it's very hard to, to, you know, totally forget about then after the game, isn't it? Now, the usual stuff probably happened from time to time with certain players that you wouldn't hold it against them. They might be saying, listen, Brian Cody's looking at you there, you could be coming off there in the next few minutes or, you know, that kind of, um, you know, it's, it's harmless enough out talk, but there was never anything like that you would hear of that went on in other sports. It really wasn't shared. And uh, I definitely think the use of all-star tours back then you used to have railway cups. Railway cups are magical as a player, probably not as a spectator because, you know, not everybody is playing during the depths of the winter. But you really got to know players, like especially in Lens, you got to know the Offaly lads, the Wexford lads. And it was great for camaraderie because when you're playing with each other in a railway cup, you're on the same team. Towards after a game, if it's Kenny versus Wexford, Kenny versus Offaly, if you win, you don't want to kind of rub it in the person's face. And if you lose, you're in no mood to talk to anyone, Shane. <laughs> so I think that, them kind of competitions and the all-star tours and things like that, I think they cut out um, a lot of that as well because you knew the guys, you know. Uh, before we get to the, the league final, I did want to just ask your opinion on a conversation that's been had over the last week or so about just how enjoyable the game is at the moment um, with the frequency of scoring and the high scores. Where do you stand on, on the quality of the game generally that we're watching at the moment? Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with the quality, Jar. It's the... I think it's the excitement people are referring to. So before, the, say when the scores were averaging maybe 111 to, to 115, them kind of scores would have been very, very common, you know, say probably 15, 20 years ago. But you had so many different exciting parts of the game other than the score. So say if the ball came into the full back line and Brian Lohan or um, Noel Hickey or we'll say Kevin Heenan from Offaly, uh, The Rock from Cork, these guys come out with a ball the whole crowd is on their feet to see him out in front. Next minute they collect it. They might, you know, shoulder that and then drive it 100 yards down the line. The crowd are going wild as if it's a goal. Um, suddenly then, if you forward on that play, it goes down and it could be a man-on-man battle inside. You know, it could be, we'll say, Eddie Brennan versus Wayne Sherlock or, you know, it could be Joe Dean versus Kevin Keane. It could be Anton and suddenly the crowd are on their feet again. What happens if the ball breaks a certain way? What if he catches it, the forward catches it, turns his man. Again, if there's a big catch, the crowd are on their feet again. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's towards now when you get the ball in the, in the fence, you, you do a five-yard stick pass. There's no buzz or excitement around that. Um, when you get the ball in the forwards, generally like the, you're kind of one versus two or one versus three. No real excitement if the, the ball breaks a certain way because the spare man is picking it up. So I think... The quality, there's no difference. The quality is probably higher than it ever was. Like, would you go ask me to take a, a puck out from 30,000 people? Well, that's, you know, steamrolling down behind me in, in Crow Park, 
very difficult thing to do. They do it with their eyes shut at the moment. Um, a stick pass from 30, 40 yards straight into a lad's hand. You know, like I'd say 50% of our ones would have been straight from his feet. Like, so I think there's no, there's no um, drop off and there's probably definitely a higher skill level. Absolutely. At the moment, I think the refer, uh, reference at the moment is the excitement of the game has definitely, you know, changed. And do you lament that? Do you miss that? Or do you think that this is just part of like it? more teams will get closer to each other and we're in a cycle where there's one dominant team and, and I, I think I think if, if you didn't have Limerick dominating take, just take Limerick out over the last four or five years anybody would have felt like they could win the All-Ireland and we wouldn't have had too many of the one-sided games is, is that part of this conversation as well because it feels a little bit like we had this conversation when the dubs were mechanically hoovering up All-Irelands people changed the game they changed the kick-out rule everything was wrong they got the forward mark when actually that was just a all-time great team and you didn't really need to change the rules yeah um, I suppose I, I tend not to look at the you know the positive side of it because you know it happened in football years ago and everybody was giving out about it did it help I don't think it did so there's no advantage to us coming on week on week complaining about the way it was and the way it should have been like you know um, it just I don't think it helps uh, in any way towards um, encouraging people to play the game to watch the game I think there will be a natural evolution. Um, like I was, I was looking at the, the styles that have happened over the last, let's say, thirty years. There, you go back to Clare. They brought in physical fitness in, in the mid nineties. That was probably never seen in, in hurling before. Running up mountains, you know, it wasn't their Clare players on behind and behind trees, so they didn't have to do the chine and then the next run. Missed the hill, the hill running, huge. They brought this physical fitness. Next minute, Kenny came along. They brought. You know, had to had to, I suppose, adapt and join with Claire and that, and they brought this spirit and intensity that forwards were working like never before. Never seen corner forwards. Their job was to score full forwards. Their job was to score goals. Now they were running back to midfield, running back to half back. Then who can block? And you had a Tipperary team then that beat you know the Clint team going for the five in a row. That Tipperary team was all about movement. Eamon O'Shea came in with his you know, different slant on the way he thought the game should be played. Next minute, you had to, you couldn't stay in your position. You're, you're watching forwards, they're moving absolutely everywhere and there were lads giving him the ball. Beforehand, when he got the ball in the backs, he just cleared as long as you could hit it. Now they were finding forwards in, in great positions. Suddenly, Tipperary score goal after goal. You had the Cork running game. Like that, that Cork running game, I remember in 06, they're after winning two in a row. We were after sticking to our guns because, you know, Brian Cody was so tough. He was so determined, so confident in, in, in his own ability to read the game. He said, no, we're doing it our way and we'll stay going. And, you know, I'm sure at the time, Cork were like you know, Tom, Tom and Jerry midfield, Tom Kenny, Jerry O'Connor, speed merchants. You couldn't catch them. They were soaring up and down the field for 70 minutes. You had Ben O'Connor, you had Niall McCarthy scoring all these scores as a result of the running game. They're running out from the back and... The question was then, should we go and change? Should you adapt that maybe our time is, is, is finished with the way we play the game? But no, they, they stuck with it and um, suddenly the running game was was kind of gone. And then you had, you know, in recent times, I suppose, Galway did a bit of movement after they scored. Say if Joe Canning was playing wing forward, he, he scored, he'd move on to the next position, which would be corner forward. And the whole Galway forwarding rotated around that way. And now, sure, as we see, Jared, we have the Limerick game, which has been so dominant for the last, what, since probably another one in the 18, but their probably current game has probably only been as dominant since 2020. 
where they just it's stick passing everywhere. And the stick passing quality is just off the charts. And I did I think that's where a lot of te- other teams are 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 failing really because they're not able to they're trying to do the Limerick game but just not able to do it as well. And um you know, um so I think T- not, there'll be a natural evolution of the game and that's when it'll change but yeah. you'd love to know how they want to come up with Well I was going to say I think the lesson from that you've just given us a brilliant potted history lesson there nobody ever got to the top by copying what was already being done everybody had to do something slightly different and closer to their own identity based on their own resources which leads me nicely to the final here about um, where Kilkenny are Kilkenny seemed to have managed to manage the transition from an all-time great to um, a disciple, and uh, and yet be slightly different. So it, it's not it's not exactly just a continuation. Derek Ling seems to be his own man, and the teams there's subtle enough changes. But are there, are there enough changes? Do you think for us to say that actually you can say there's a difference between Kilkenny this year and last year? Um, well, there's new players in there. You have Billy Drennan uh, is in there. He's having, having a fantastic league campaign. He's an All-Ireland champion in handball. You have Garo Dunn is coming in and making great impacts off the bench, scored a hat-trick against the Brary in, a, in, in the Dillon uh, um, challenge game there to, to raise funds. So, like, they have, they're, they are adding players and adding players to the panel um, to this. They have a few positions, which is like Hugh Lawler seems to be being tried out around the, the half back line. Young Tommy Welch is tried out around the half back line. Parg has gone back inside. So there has been plenty of, of change, you know, slight change, as you said, Jer. So yeah, Kenny would be very confident. But I think it, it all winds down to the fact of that the strength of this Limerick team, their physical strength is such a huge asset to them. And we saw Tipperary the last day. They tried to take him on with, with, with you know, just go on at him to the physical side. And I don't think it's the way to go at this Limerick team. I think you have to go at him with movement and speed because ha- taking on guys that are six foot five, six foot seven, like Limerick have three or four lads six foot five, and they probably have probably eight or nine lads six foot two, six foot three and above. So I think taking him on. Um, with with the physical game, there's only going to be one winner, and that's Limerick because they'll be able to take the hits better than anybody else. When they go to go through the tackles, they'll go through more tackles than anybody else. That's just science. That's just the way the way the, the way it is. So I think you have to take them on with movement, and you have to take them on with with speed. Speed is a huge thing. When you're strong, um, the, 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 what you want, to, what do you want your opposition to do? Take you on with strength. What you what do you not want them to do? Take you on with speed. So with the Kenny, you have, you know, Owen Cody there, you have Billy Drennan, all these boys, as, absolutely fast as lightning. And I'm not just talking about their, their feet, their heads. Like, uh, hurling is a class game. It's all about class. Um, you could score two or three goals in the space of a minute if your head is switched on and if your feet are switched on. So I think taking on Limerick in this league final, I would not take them on just going, you know it. With, with, with the, the physical side of things. I take them on the other side and, and you, you need to score goals. This Limerick team has been brilliant in recent times about not conceding goals. They need to take them on and score a few goals and you know keep, keep them, I suppose, short on the other side regards, keep them out of the, away from the goalkeeper. Yeah, these two sides uh, produced a, a classic in the All-Ireland final last year. The hope is that they'll produce a classic again and we can start talking about an exciting match. What do you think is going to happen? Who's going to win? Yeah, so I, I do think Limerick are going to win. I just think they're that they're after keeping very fresh during the league. Although they're winning every match and winning comfortably enough in the end, they're leaving off you know three or four of their their big shots. 
I reckon they'll go a championship. I reckon the two of them will go a nearly championship type teams this weekend. And um, I do think Limerick will win. Um, but I'm excited to see where Kilkenny at now. Um, as we said, they have a few position switches now. Like, you know, they're going to be able to take on maybe, I always see the, that Limerick half hour line is Gerard Hegarty and Tom Arcey, Keane Lynch. Like, they're just stars and they're just brilliant in every game. Two over the three of them are nearly man of the match in every single game. They're, they're left with all acres and acres of space, Jar. So I'd love to see the Kenny team cutting out, like as in man mark them guys and see what happens then on the other side because everybody has tried and maybe the, the zonal thing against them where they leave off Garod when he goes out the field, they leave off Keane, they leave off Tom Arcey. Um, the result every time is one, one or two of them scoring five points, scoring two, three, scoring seven points. So I'd love them to man mark the half hour line and the half back line. Because although they're very strong on one side, the half-back line of Hannon, Burns and Kyle Hayes, they're commonly coming up with probably six points plus. Yeah. And that's probably not even just from freeze. Yeah. So I'd be man-marking the half-back line and the half-hour line and seeing where that'll take you. Well, we'll find out on uh, on Sunday. Good stuff, Tommy. Thanks a million for joining us. Great to have you back. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Tommy Rask, give me some thoughts there on the weekend's hurling. It is 8.34 this morning. OTBAM is live every morning with Gillette Labs. Got the ultimate shave or your money back neon night edition available now. We have a competition running for a pair of uh, tickets to Leinster against Leicester. LeinsterRugby.ie for uh, ticket details if you want to buy tickets to go to the game tomorrow. Uh, how are we getting on, Shane? There's some nice ones in, Chair, I have to say. There's a short list. We're not picking the winner just yet, are we? We're just going to give us a yeah, few in the short list. People really... Uh, making me feel good this morning. Lads, is Shane Hannon the new Evan Ferguson, says Frank? Well, when I was Evan Ferguson's age, 18, he was six. I'm 12 years older than him, so not really. I can't be the new Evan Ferguson. Um, always had Shane Pegg designed it hard, hard as nails and no-nonsense centre-back, says Fred. Uh, Beckham was world-class and Park is a legend. Spectre Coyle, they're all saying the right things, I think. So... Um, Keep keep that those teams coming, and you can also comment on what what's happening in the show today as well. Um, I think I have my winner. I'm not going to say it yet, but but there's still time for people to to change my mind. Uh, Neil Smith says, "How are you, lads? I was in South Korea for the pandemic, and I'm in Bulgaria now studying medicine. OTB has played a part in keeping my head together in the morning over the years. So thank you. Uh, thanks for getting in touch, Neil, and a happy uh, happy Easter to you. I hope." Um you're having the crack in Bulgaria. If there's anybody else out there all around the world, uh, get in touch this morning. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the YouTube stream or you can WhatsApp us on 0879-180-180. Uh, Rooney will end up with a better post-playing career than Lamps in the end, I think, says Spectacor. I feel the same. I think you're right. Somebody else pointed out that um, he wasn't that good at Derby. Lampard, Rory Armour says, a uh, friend of the show, Lampard didn't do well at Derby. The team he had was outrageous. They had to go up. Mount, Tamori and Harry Wilson all on loan. Um, yeah. I think that uh, I don't think Lampard's career is finished I definitely think that if he learns a little bit and stops blaming everybody around him and starts like building a team culture that has the desire to work with each other then he could still end up being a good manager but um, that's more likely to happen in the England setup, I would suspect than with Chelsea we'll see it is 8.37 time for us to turn our attention to Gaelic football and uh, almost unawares it is an, an absolutely massive weekend of games whether or not the outcome of them is going to be absolutely massive uh, we'll have to wait and see Mayor Roscommon is in Mikhail Park on Sunday we have Leinster preliminary action in these are all the uh, provincial football championships Wicklow back out again against Carlo Longford against Offaly Leash against Wexford it's Tip and Waterford in Munster and Clare versus Cork in Cusick Park and Ennis which is not a gimme for Cork by any stretch of the imagination so I'm delighted to say John Maughan 
uh, is with us to talk to us about these games this weekend. John, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Good, guys. Good. Yeah, from a beautiful sunny morning here in Casabar. Nice to talk to you both. What is the level of expectation when you're out in the streets and people are coming up to you talking about the game this weekend? What's everybody feeling about this? A small little bit of trepidation, I'll be honest with you, because, um, you know, there's an interesting statistic that's floating around on social media and, and in various chats uh, about Roscommon uh, managing to beat Mayo in the first round of the championship after we've uh, won the league on the last four occasions. So, uh, yeah, Roscommon, had a, they've had a fantastic league, um, an incredible performance in the last game, albeit against uh, a malfunctioning Donegal, I think, to put up 21 points uh, to nine on that and that particular game. So they're coming in with huge confidence and uh, no better team than Roscommon to bring Mayo back down to back down to earth. But uh, at the same time, like, I mean, that victory over um, Galway last Sunday in the Croke Park uh, will have raised our expectations and we're coming with a bit of momentum as well. But uh, yeah, it's just kind of a, one of those games where you're just keeping your fingers crossed and Let's hope that we get out of jail. If we were to benchmark it against the the, the league performance, yeah, Mayo. Uh, I think I did, that game was played in early March. We look very, very athletic and very uh, and very strong, particularly in the opening half of that national league campaign. And we looked like we were complete control. But I tell you, the way Roscommon finished in that particular game, they finished. Uh, I think the, the the lead Mayo's lead had stretched out to seven or eight points at one stage and. Within four or five or six minutes, it was back down to a kick of a ball. And if you might recall, I think they had a, a, an opportunity at the very last minute of that game, the last attack, where Jim O'Connor spread himself to prevent maybe a last-minute winning goal for Roscommon. So, I tell you, it's one of those games where you're just, uh, I think Epic Stadium's management team would be glad it's over and uh, get a two-week break before um, they go on to Pierce Stadium if they're lucky enough to do that. As an intercounty manager, John, of many years, you can understand and appreciate the importance of a, of a turnaround and maybe having more rest time before a big game like this than your opposition. Uh, it's probably understandable that Kevin McStay was looking for the league final last week to be pushed by, uh, forward to Saturday from Sunday. Um, is, is that going to have an impact in this game? Roscommon kind of sitting there waiting, ready ready to go, whereas you know Mayo had to go out last weekend. It hasn't had the same impact as it would have had a number of years ago because the conditioning of players... Is so professional now, and uh, Kevin has an enormous backroom team that has that managed down to its nth degree. So I would imagine certainly there was no celebrations last Sunday evening. Uh, ordinarily, there might be a, a bit of a party or a Monday at club uh, after you win a league title. And certainly, in the couple of occasions that we've won one down here in Mayo, that appears to be the case. But uh, no, I'd say Kevin was very anxious to get them into recovery mode immediately after the game last Sunday. And as I say, with the conditioning. Of the of the players, I know Mayo's conditioning and and strength work that they've done. They started off a very very early in the campaign, and that's another little argument there. We're going through the front door, and I know I've no doubt Kevin Say will want to win a provincial championship because I'm not convinced this Mayo team right now are quite ready to win an All Ireland title, particularly when you benchmark them against the Dublin uh, performance and the Dublin resources they have. I'm not quite sure that we're quite good enough yet. So I think Kevin will be anxious to win a provincial title and I think he'll throw the kitchen sink in the next couple of weeks to try and get over the line. And obviously, we're Mayo lucky enough to beat Roscommon and, and, and I'm suggesting to you it's not an absolute certainty. But if we are the big one and it will be an even bigger game as uh, Galway and Pearce Stadium and that could be a really, really tricky encounter if Mayo say get there. 
What What are the doubts? What, what are causing you to have doubts about Mayo's ability to get over the line in the All-Ireland? Is it anything to do with how Galway played them last week and, and maybe showed a bit of a template for teams to play against this Mayo side? I think there's a certain element of that. I think Porrick Joyce will have uh, gone off to Portugal on Monday morning you know, lamenting the fact that uh, they didn't put Mayo away. They had created those four goal chances or our goalkeeper was man the match. He alluded to that in his post-match interview, apparently. That, uh, yeah, they certainly opened us up. They came down to the heart of a defence. And there was a little bit of a question mark about our new defensive setup. Uh, are we strong enough and good enough, particularly when teams come at us with pace? Jamer O'Connor, of course, is playing, playing more or less as an out-and-out sweeper these days behind Conor Loftus. Of course, Conor is our new centre-half back. Uh, was, um, he had a brilliant league campaign and... And, you know, and probably embellished his reputation a little bit even last Sunday. But nonetheless, I just felt Galway penetrated uh, quite easily. And when you consider that Shane Walsh is not quite at the tempo that he needs to be, uh, he missed quite a few uh, opportunities, 45s and one thing and another. Of course, Peter Cook had that last-minute goal chance. He turned, they were a bit sloppy. So I think Park Joyce and Galway will appreciate, appreciate uh, and understand that they have a greater opportunity with a three-league a three-week lead into Pierce Stadium to tidy up elements of the game that make a big difference to them. Damien Comer, like I mean, not starting, not quite fit enough. Johnny Heaney going off um, injured early in that first half. Get those guys back up to tempo over the next couple of weeks, and I just think that um, Galway can improve by six or seven points uh, for a Pierce Stadium game against Mayo Mayo or Oscommon. Um, just and in terms of the specific approach that Galway took, they basically conceded the kickouts to Mayo and said, OK, Mayo, uh, you're going to have to play through us if you're going to beat us. And that really seemed to have stuck Mayo in a bit of treacle. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly, and it's an interesting aspect of the modern game, the, you know, the, 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 the high press and what you do there. Yeah, that's a, a certainly something that Porrick and uh, uh, um, Keane O'Neill would have, uh, um, and his backroom team would have come up with that very clear strategy and it certainly has worked because everybody tries to beat the press. I mean, if we can go along with a goalkeeper that can certainly, uh, you know, kick over the press on occasion. So, again, I think uh, uh, Kevin and his, and his team will be spending a bit of time on working on an alternative to that. So that when uh, a team decides to give you the ball, can we still go along? Can we still take the... Uh, they tried it uh, on a couple of occasions here throughout the league and a couple, particularly the home games where uh, they have gone along with great success. And look at it up, very much depends on, on your midfield and how dominant they are. And, you know, that's an element of a game. Matthew Rowan, you know, in, in some games he's been brilliant against Dirty God. He was superb. Matthew appeared to have returned to the great form that he, he displayed. There's maybe a talk there that maybe Jack Carney might give us a better option, maybe winning clean possession if we decide to go along in our kickouts. Yeah, there's certainly food for thought on, uh, on those lines, but uh, Galway certainly, uh, with the approach they took, to cause us problems for sure. And particularly when the opener's up down the heart of a defence, he just created a bit of consternation. Could have had two or three goals, uh, and that's certainly a concern. And uh, this defensive structure, albeit new for Mayo, it certainly needs a little bit of tweaking uh, if we are to go on and, and, and land the big one. Uh, John, I know Donegal are having their troubles and they were already re- already relegated at the time, but Roscommon kicked 21 points against them in the last round of the league. 20 of those were from play. I think there was only one free in the game. And when you look at that Roscommon full forward line, I mean, it is dangerous. You've got Jim Murta, Connor Cox, Ben O'Carroll, all free scoring throughout the league. 
how do you expect that Mayo full-back line to cope with them? Because uh, Coyne and Callan in particular were, were excellent against Galway, I thought, and, and, and have been in recent weeks. But how do you expect that those battles to match up? It's, it, it's, it's going to be a worry. I, I may, I, I, in particular, this Ben O'Carroll has certainly caught everyone's attention this year with his performance. He's been superb. We know about the two Murtas, Kieran and Jermitt. Obviously, Connor Cox, a, a very formidable opponent, strong we have a very inexperienced full-back nine. Um, you know, look at Jack Coyne. is a fabulous footballer. I watched him playing and winning an intermediate title with Bally Hollis on a couple of occasions last year. He's a, he's a gem of a footballer. Uh, McBreen has been on the periphery of the Mayor team for the last couple of years, albeit injury. Just kept him back from um, from being a permanent starter over the last couple of seasons. And Sam Callanan has just been superb as well. Notwithstanding, the three of them are quite inexperienced. And I would be a little bit concerned. And then again, it's all about the quality of ball that uh, Ross Kama can get into that full forward line. But certainly, it's a, a, our, our defensive setup is a little bit uh, concerning. Uh, nonetheless, those three guys on the Mayo full back line are all talented, they're quick, they're athletic. And I thought Sam Callanan in particular did a fantastic uh, uh, job on Shane Ward. So he's come in with great confidence. Jack Coyne, uh, um, you know, very, very talented footballer. And McBreen down here has been the talk of, of Mayo football supporters because they, everyone feels we've now found a full-back that's athletic and strong and can get up and down the field. But I just, watching these Mayo team and the transition from the new management from James Horns into Kevin McStay's, we're very, very athletic. I yeah. mean, that's the one thing with terrific pace. And even down to our cornerbacks and our full-back, every opportunity they get, they are gone. And we have this kind of rotating system that Jeremy O'Connor will sit back and Conor Loftus will hold and Stephen Cohn will hold the defensive setup. And they're just given, a, you know, a green light to our full back line to attack at will. So I expect that uh, the same way as Sean Kelly did it for, for Galway last week, every opportunity uh, he was going to get in that National League final, he was going to take the likes of Aiden O'Shea on a gallop 150 metres, which Aiden doesn't like, obviously, up and down the field. I expect that uh, the Mayo full back line will try and do the same with that uh, Roscommon uh, you know, full forward line. Put them on the back foot. Put them chasing. Make it uncomfortable for them and just see how athletic and how fit they really, really are. I think that will be a, an approach that uh, Mayo will take. But you mentioned it there. 21 points, 20 from play against Donegal, albeit a Donegal team that was in complete disarray at that time. But we all expected Donegal might have come out in that last, last league game and put down a marker and a statement after losing a manager and, and, of course, all that consternation that it creates. But um, you have to uh, point a light on on, on, uh, on Roscommon. Yeah. And they, not alone that performance, but throughout the league. Oh, yeah. Impressive. Very impressive. It's, it's all actually set up for the perfect ambush. And I can see why there'd be a little bit of trepidation on the streets uh, in Mayo this week. I do want to ask you about Clare, though, because... Um, this is a big, big, big opportunity for Clare against Cork at the weekend. We've been waiting for this Clare team to have a statement victory under Colin Collins. They've been a staple in Division 2 for such a long period of time and they've had a, a little bit of heartbreak there and they've had a little bit of heartbreak in the championship. And this year, if they were to get into the Sam Maguire, uh, they'd obviously have to do it through the um, the provincial championship. There would be a game at home that no one would really want to go down to, to Ennis to play them. But... It basically all rests on this game against uh, Cork this weekend. And we don't really know what to make of Cork either. So uh, this is definitely one of those where it could be a famous victory for Clare or it could be the birth of a new Cork movement. 
Yeah, I mean, Cork have created a small bit of confusion, particularly that performance against Louds, not taking anything away from Louds' uh, league campaign. And they've been certainly a team that's on the rise and have, uh, you know, they've been fantastic under under Mickey Hart. But um, Cork, I just haven't got that consistency. You know, their, their, their performances are so fragmented. One week, they look absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you have them in your accumulator and yes, they go and put out a brilliant victory and they look magical and the next weekend you're expecting them to drive on. People were talking a number of weeks ago about Cork being the dark horses in this year's championship. I'm not convinced at all. They have individually, they have some fantastic footballers, but collectively that cohesion is just not there. Uh, they have a grateful forward line. And if they hit form, you say, yeah, they can blow some of the top three or four teams of the country away if they all click on the one day. But they just don't do that. I mean, Clare, for the first time in, I think, eight years, have been relegated. Is this Colin Collins' last throw of the dice? They haven't beaten Cork, I think, in about 20 years. They've already played them twice in this year's uh, and this year in McGrath Cup and the National League. And I'd say really underperformed. You know, that big rallying force you'd expect from Clare at home, you just begin to question it. But I feel if there's any day to do it, it's this weekend. I just, there's something about them, you know, there's a bit of a, a, a I suppose, story circulating that Colin Collins might move on after, I mean, incredible uh, eight or nine years in charge. They've been absolutely fantastic. I know they've been missing a couple of their big name players when they play a cork in the National League. I think they're two. Uh, first choice midfielders uh, um, uh, were were missing uh, um, on that occasion. So if if Clare can get back and get a good crowd going, they can be formidable. Would I back them uh, to win it? I probably wouldn't, just because the history is there and the talent in, in that particularly in that Cork attack is just so so strong. And uh, for me, I just can't see it happening. I'd love to see it happen. And I obviously have been involved with Clare for four years back in the early 90s. And we had some wonderful days down in Cusick Park in National League and a couple of championship games. And I just, uh, I'd be keeping my, uh, i keep my fingers crossed. But with uh, Brian Hurley and Sherlock and Sean Porter, who's a beautiful footballer, Chris Jones, big midfielder, E. McGuire, they just have a lot of talent right around the park. And, uh, I just think it might be a big, uh, a big, big struggle for Clare. Okay, one last one for me. It's uh, going to be Easter Sunday, and it's a, the first round of the Connacht Football Championship. Is there any possibility that some team gets their strength and conditioning perfect, and the others kind of screw it up over the course of the next eight, twelve weeks, and then we have a slightly unusual autumn winner because of the change of system, or does this actually benefit the Dubs and Kerry more than anybody else because of the strength and depth that they have? Ah, yeah, like, I mean, I have to say, you know, Dublin for me, I mean, when you consider you no know, Brian Howard, uh, Paul Mannion, just a cameo appearance the last day, you no know, Jack McCaffrey, you no know, uh, Merchant, I mean, they're, they're playing within their comfort zone, Dublin. They, they to me, any team that beats Dublin will win the All-Ireland, I feel. Of course, Kerry have been very slow out of the blocks. Uh, they've been indifferent. They got exactly what they wanted out of the league. That's what Jack O'Connor said: get uh, six points and, be, and survive. And that's exactly what they did. Can't see any big shocks. Like I mean, uh, Louth have been superb throughout the last league. Yeah, Jerry, you just begin to there's a question mark over them. You know, uh, could have been beaten by an awful lot more last weekend in Dublin. They appear to not to be a real Crow Park team. Uh, Roy Gallagher hasn't got the strength and depth or the quality that he had in, when he was involved with Jimmy Gillis and Johnny Gall. Uh, forgot to mention Longford and Offaly there. Longford relegated. Offaly, 
both of them Thatcham Cup uh, performers, it would appear. Uh, that would be an interesting game, could end in a draw. The ones that you'd, you'd be a little bit worried about, uh, I was talking to Andy Moore and I meet him in the gym here, uh, here at Castle Bar, I was just chatting to him after um, their, their uh, performance, the last, last league game against Sligo, which they lost. And uh, they're travelling, they're on the road this week to New York. Uh, they're always uh, very, very tricky encounters. Uh, I remember being involved in New York in a couple of cases with Mayor Roscommon. And God, by God, you lose uh, a couple of kilos on the sideline in those games. Likewise with uh, uh, London and Sligo. Albeit, I just don't think London are as strong as they were a couple of years ago, similarly with uh, New York. But uh, I know both uh, Tony McEntee and Andy Moore will be very, very relieved if they come away next Monday or Tuesday out, out of those uh, two capital cities with victories. But I'd say they will sweat for them. There certainly will be occasions during those uh, two games uh, overseas where uh, Tony McEntee with Sligo will be sweating a little bit, similarly yeah. with Andy in New York but I expect both of them to prevail by the narrow margins John but look at, it's wonderful look at, we're looking forward to a great championship great stuff great to have you with us thanks a million cheers God bless boys take care now thank John, you John Maughan there speaking of overseas Leo O'Brien says I'm an Irishman living in Melbourne I love the show listen to you guys every day keep up the great work and have a great Easter happy Easter to you Leo in Melbourne as well and in Cape Town tuning in late says Barbalatza 83 I don't know if I got the pronunciation correct <laughs> Barbalatza sounds alright uh, tuning in late I have tickets for the Stormers versus Munster on Saturday week can't wait stand up and fight uh, thanks for uh, getting in touch so we have Bulgaria we have Melbourne we have Cape Town so far this morning any advance on that uh, you can get us leave a comment on the YouTube streamer uh, tweet us at off the ball AM uh, we are going to pick a winner for the Leinster tickets giveaway uh, after our next slot uh, Quirky1980 says fair dues to Derek Ling he seems to have put Kilkenny in position to compete without depending on TJ something that Cody failed to transition to in the past three years I mean you do have one of the best hurlers in the country who is in absolute peak condition would you not think this is an important thing to use I, you know um, but obviously uh, he's been unavailable to Ling so far so we'll see uh, ball in behind on a five-side Astro is that even a thing says Frank who seems to be confusing Shane with Colm Colm is nice. the Astro player Shane plays full 11 aside 90 minutes 11 aside although I, I got my I, I did 85 chair and then came off to my you know you, when you've scored the hat-trick and you come off to the round of applause you, you take your ball and go home and the game is yeah, exactly. actually over it's because fine. there's only one ball come on take me off I don't need to be here anymore uh, there's a me and team but there's no I in Shane Hannon um, there you go uh, Tommy Walsh's first time on OTB and not being the highlight of the show because that's undoubtedly Shane says Ronan Gilson and so everybody is trying to bribe you to win those tickets well Kian Rowe has said listening from Dubai lads Shane has you might have read this one Shane has the shape of crouch and the touch of a curb which has made me laugh I didn't you're not far wrong I didn't um, so there you go uh, we're in Dubai we're in Cape Town we're in Melbourne and we're in Bulgaria this morning I don't know where in Bulgaria um, we did the Rooney we did the Lampard one Uh and did that one where's Mother Goose isn't he their go-to emergency man asks Spectre Corp Avram Grant um, Avram, Avram's done yeah he's done where is he now uh, there you go Shane Hannon and Paul Smith are the modern day version of the Niall Quinn and Kevin Phillips strike partnership says Cormac Musali that's a, that's a fact I don't know who Cormac is but uh, that's that's not far off but Paul he, is the Paul is the smaller version sometimes a nod the, nod the ball down to him vice versa he's um He's a tricky player still. He's 41. Peter Pan, we call him. So he's uh, still young at heart. But uh, yeah, it's not far off, I have to say. They really, really are leaning into the, the positivity this morning. There you go. 
8.57, time for to turn our attention to the Masters, which obviously gets underway tonight. Joe Malloy, good morning to you. How are you? Happy Christmas. Morning, morning. I just heard the phrase positivity this morning. I presume that's what the reason is. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. Um, John, John Duggan asked me the other day, what's your favourite part about the Masters? And I was like, I have to actually think. It's a really good question. What is your favourite bit about this? I don't know. Uh... Uh, I like it all. I mean, I do. I, I do. I'm a sucker for uh, the vicarious living through the traditions in the build-up. Uh, I ache for them. Uh, I'd love to do that, uh, to live that life. I suppose um, I do love the golf course. If I was to boil it down to a single thing, first major of the year, everybody there. But like the intricacy of the golf course, uh, I watch a lot of golf on the PGA Tour and a lot of the courses are very boring. Um and the shots that they are required to hit are very boring, whereas there's like a rich tapestry of what they're being asked to do here. So if like if you're into your golf and, you know, we're a great golfing country with lots of brilliant golfers, um, the things they're asked to do uh, get me a little bit excited, whereas I can kind of sit there a bit slumped watching PGA Tour events uh, far too often, you know. I think one of the, the things about that is that we've seen so many great winners of the tournament struggle across the course of the week and come up with something memorable from a position of difficulty. Maybe that's to do with familiarity, that this is one of the few tournaments where we actually get the same course year in, year out, and we're, we're intimately familiar now with almost every aspect of it. Yeah, I think that adds to the richness. You know, they get to 12, you got a million things gone through your mind as a player and as a fan you know you, every time Spieth gets there I think he is like post-traumatic uh, stress and even in 19 where Tiger won it uh, I think three went into the water uh, Kepka and Molinari certainly so yeah that all adds um, and it's just so beautiful you know like it, like it mightn't be the most admirable golf club in many ways but the course is is kind of incredible so all of those things the way to history um, yeah I, I really love it but but uh uh, this is all set up to be a potentially absolute classic, unless the weather uh, causes havoc, which I think it's going to. Mm. You don't need to be on autopilot, Joe, don't you, in that final back nine on, on the Sunday, because Vincent Hogan's even writing in the Irish Independent this morning talking about that uh, Bryson DeChambeau episode of Full Swing, where he's sitting there after the first round last year, I think he shot a 73 maybe, he was out of contention, and then he looks at someone like Scotty Scheffler, who appears to not think of anything when he's playing golf. Yeah, I mean, the, the, absolutely. I mean, if you can keep the nerves at bay, that autopilot's very um, uh, good to have. But, like, you know, to, to Jared's question as well, the course, I asked, we had Portrait Carrington on, on Golf Weekly, uh, and I said, like, do you rate this, like, in an architectural way? Is this, like, the best there is? And he said, I would class this as intimidating. And, and Faldo was talking this week as well, and he was saying to your autopilot point, uh, you can't switch off on any shot here. I mean, the second you kind of think, I'm, I'm going okay here. I've got, I got a feel for this place and how to play this. It just gets you. You know, there's constant, you've got the wrong, you have the balls above your feet and you need to hit a fade and you got a number and you have to hit it. And if, you, if, you're, if you're two yards off, um, you're rolling off the green and suddenly it's a double bogey and you're thinking, I didn't do it. What did I do wrong there? I hit a pretty good shot. So like it is, I think it's such a great um course because there is a, a genuine birdie double bogey opportunity on pretty much every hole um so all of that makes it really compelling again and and so the autopilot thing for sure uh, in terms of your nerves and and Schefter's really interesting case on in that point because last sun, uh, sunday last year 
he was in tears, uh, like literally cradled uh, by his wife in tears saying, I can't win the Masters. I like this is I shouldn't be here. This is insane. And then unflappable on the course. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. He's, you know, uh, what was it um, Liam Payne said about Will Smith? Uh, one of the world's great emoters. Emoters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the world's <laughs> great. Scotty Scheffler's not one of the world's great emoters. Uh, so he doesn't, he doesn't grab anyone. He just doesn't. And he plays a very conservative brand of golf as well. And everything is just kind of solid. And yet some of his parts, he's so good at the moment. Um, so he, he's an, he, like, if you compare him to Rory, he is the opposite in every way. Uh, he, I, I, I'm trying to do the maths. I think he's made the guts of 40 million in the last two years. You know, he just, he just can't stop winning. Uh, he's still driving a 2012 uh, GMC Yukon that his dad gave him. Uh, he is, he's very much a man of God, Christian, and so uh, believes it's all in God's hands. And um, I'm not saying he's doing that cynically to help his golf, but it does help his golf. So well, he has this we were veneer, talking- you know, sports people down the years, it's a very common thing. We were talking he about has this, this veneer of yeah. it's all in God's hands and well, we, uh, Easter incredibly Sunday. stable family. Easter well. Sunday, it's really important this week. Like it's an extra, it's a, it's just this, as you say, it's a, but it's a, Destiny. it's kind of a bulletproof <laughs> sense. It is bulletproof. Of, it is bulletproof. And I, you know, I like, I see it with Katie Taylor sometimes. I, I would think her opponent walking out just seeing this veneer of, I mean, God's hands is mm. an extra layer that makes them kind of, it gives a touch of aura, you know. He's had the same coach since he was 12. On full swing, the most controversial thing he said, being mic'd up for a whole year, was that, you know, Meredith, she eats crisps in bed sometimes. So annoying uh, to his caddy on the course. Uh, Wonderful family. So, like, there's nothing to dislike. Uh, There's nothing to reach out and make you, I think, go, wow, this is elect. This is the golf I want to see. But um, he's scary good. Last defending champion to win was Woods in 02. And only three have done it. Jack in 66, Faldo in 90, Woods in 02. Like, the, even Scotty Scheffler, remember Woods famously chipped in the Nike ball hovered in 05? Mm. Yeah. That was the first time Woods had chipped in that entire year. Scotty Scheffler has chipped in 11 times this year. So, he, you know, but even it doesn't really register because he chips in and he kind of goes, Hey. Yeah. <laughs> nice. It's all nice. So he, that makes him scary. It, like, he's really, really good. Um we do love talking about the weather in Ireland so this could actually be the perfect Masters for us because it looks like it may be so bad that we might be seeing golf on Monday slash Tuesday I know I know and you boys off on Monday morning huh mm, perfect isn't it um, so today is going to be okay Friday and Saturday going to be a mess uh, they're saying 10 to 12 degrees Celsius which again by our standards isn't so bad but that's cold by their standards and I'm sure Tiger was his back is aching at the thought and more to the point uh, thunder uh, which means uh, delays. And that just brings in all sorts of unpredictability. And, and, you know, if you're Rory and you're in a state of flow, which he can get into, he's going to, you know, that, that will affect certain players like him, I think, more so. Uh, like the, the point is made routinely, there's a wet course and that will bring in the bombers and that will eliminate the short hitters. And yet I just have this nagging thought that the last time we had weather akin to this was in 07 when Zach Johnson won a short hitter and in 03 when Mike Weir won a short hitter. So it just brings in qualities like resolve and patience and dealing with inevitable adversity. And it's it, it just, it, you know, I watched Paul McGinley last night on, on NBC 
and he was saying I, I now have real not doubts over Rory but I just I, 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 it's not what he wanted to see so bad weather who knows yeah that doesn't help and he has been feeling himself recently Rory like a lot of talk, talk was around that 375 yard drive in Texas a couple of weeks ago and rightly so to within three feet but even his um his press conferences in advance, like talking about visualising Scotty Scheffler handing him the green jacket in Butler's cabin, like it's talk that we, we expect Roy to be cocky, but he seems to be really in a good place emotionally. Yeah, I agree. That's Bob Rotella. Bob Rotella, interestingly, has flown in. He's on site with Rory all week, which is so interesting. <laughs> so interesting. Because um, Rory, you know, he, he has flitted from one psychological approach to another when it comes to this tournament without amazing success because he's, he's blown himself out of this tournament the last four opening rounds. You know, uh, if, if you're outside the top 10 after round one, it's not good. Only once in the last 12 years, if you're outside the top 10 after round one, uh, has somebody won. So it's really not easy. Rory's often been 30th or worse. So Rotella has flown in. He's on site with them. And I would say to your point, Shane, he just strikes me as like very seasoned now. You know, he got the grey hairs. Uh, you know, he should have won this thing twelve years ago. So he knows this course better than any. Like you were talking about Scheffler, Scary, and Ram, and these guys. Nobody knows this course of the contenders better than Rory. Nobody has more experience. But you know, he's gone from the golf doesn't define me and my family does to now. I think accepting that didn't work for him on the course. You know, he'd be saying these things and he'd get on the course and suddenly, golf did define him and he did get nervous. So. Uh, visualization, I hadn't heard that quote, but that has Rotella written all over it. Rotella is, you know, I've read all his books uh, in vain, but it's, it's, it's very, it's annoyingly simple and it's lots of dream big, embrace it, and then one shot at a time. That's about the height of, of what he's saying. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't say, uh, you, Joe Brawley would have a field day with him. I'd say. Um, I wouldn't say he's, he's cocky, but I think he's... Um, He's had eight, you know, post that Ryder Cup where he was in tears, where I think he just thought, oh, my God, I'm, I'm actually making a mess of this whole thing. And he has sorted out his game. I think genuinely the confidence has come from how reliable his game now is. His, his game is so reliable. He's, you know, he's even had a, an iffy year this year in comparison to last year. And he's won once. And his last three events, he's finished third and second. And it's kind of been like changing putter, changing driver, you know, just uh, reassessing things. So. It's it's kind of the first Masters where I'd, I'd almost stake my life he's going to be there or thereabouts if, 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 if he doesn't have a bad first round. Right. Um, we, we've only got a minute left. When, yeah, sure. There's no way that we can do the whole live thing properly in that. But do you expect the live crew to contend? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's saying, nah. I, like, didn't stop Patrick Reed against Rory. I, I just like 54 holes I think they'll manage 72 it doesn't seem uh, to be that big a deal does it, <laughs> like, it re- like it's, I think a lot of nonsense has been talked there plus uh, you're now injecting these guys with more adrenaline than they've had all year yeah I, I, I and they got a point to prove so um, yeah I think it's going to be classic and uh, you know one last quick point the extent to which McElroy Trevor Rimmon was talking and he was saying I've never seen this before I've never seen an international player break America this way uh, he is the biggest story. Like Tiger's not been mentioned the way he usually is. Every podcast, every American golf talk, talk show, they're all starting with Rory. And Immelman was saying, it's really hard to do that as a non-American. But like, he has never been more popular. He's, he's the biggest name in golf. All the talk is 
Grand Slam, Grand Slam, Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that is a lot of weight when he tees it up at 6.48 this evening Irish time. So get through the first round and then we could be in for something. All right. Every shot, obviously, uh, available to watch as well, no doubt. Or is it? Uh, as the oh, rule? yeah. Yeah, flick on. If you miss any of it, flick on your app. Just go into whatever player you want to see. Hit play, and in two minutes you'll have their entire round. I mean, it's the future. <laughs> right here today, Joe. Good stuff. Thanks yeah. a million. Okay, fellas, enjoy. See ya. Bye, bye, Joe. Malloy. You can get more of that goodness, of course, on Golf Weekly, and of course every uh, weekday evening from seven o'clock and off the ball on News Talk. Hatrick. Oh, okay. Shane, sorry. Steve Lane has been in touch to say Hattrick Productions were behind Father Ted whose theme tune was written by Neil Hannon and now Shane Hannon has his own Hattrick production the Hannon Hattrick Trifecta. That's interesting. And one time in the 2011 season when Monantown FC won the Ulster Junior Cup I was only a kid scored three Hattricks in three games in a row which was it's still my crowning achievement. Not bragging about it, but I'm not not bragging yeah, about it. Yeah, you are a bit, but that's a okay. Bit. So it was nine goals in three games, which I was delighted with. So that that makes sense. Yeah, Father Ted Production Company. There you go. Uh, Spectre, of course, says, feeling himself. Mark it off your OTB bingo card, lads. If you want to give us an example of the other things that are on your OTB bingo card there, Spectre. Grim, apparently. Apparently I say grim quite often. We could get one printed for you and we could distribute them if you wanted. Yeah, yeah. I hate to be so cliched about the whole thing, but cliches are only cliches because they're true. Spectre Corp. <laughs> you know that. We haven't run the competition uh, courtesy of uh, LeinsterRugby.ie which is where you need to go if you want to get tickets for Leinster against Leicester at the Aviva tomorrow. Uh, and we're giving it away for the best comment of the day. Now, if you win this, you have to immediately DM us on our main Twitter account which is at Off The Ball. I don't care if you don't have a Twitter account. Just set one up for this, for the sole purposes of this and slide into our DMs and we will email you the tickets immediately so that there is no oh you have to come to the office to pick up the tickets you don't you, just a miracle of modern as, as we said mm. it, it's the new modern world but Shane has to pick a winner and he's going to have to pick a winner with a human name <clears throat> oh, I don't know I mean you know, or unless you're a regular and we know you are a human being yeah. so don't worry Spectre Court you are you were in the running but I don't even know if you live in Dublin so mm. or, or if you want to go pick the winner now is this go what we're doing? Go for it. See, there's a lot of geographical ones. In fact, JP Purcell says, listening from Barakay Island, Philippines, lads. Oh, wow. Avid listener, love the show. Wow. That I didn't is, even know that was a place. That is as exotic as we have got. Yeah. So, uh, look, the, the geographical ones are brilliant, but the problem is those people aren't going to fly home. To Can you make it to the event on Friday night? Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, I'm going to go with Michael. So, Michael has, has given me a lovely visual, but he's also picked out a couple of things from this morning's show so he's very observant Michael says John Maughan and Tommy Welsh would make a great door staff partnership for coppers Tommy is a nice welcoming fella has the chats to gauge how locked you are while Maughan hangs a bit behind with a steely glare it's a nice image two lads at the door that's your winning that's Mi- the winning one Michael well done you're going to Leinster versus Leicester on Friday night Michael who? just Michael alright okay, I'm sure well. he has a second name as well though give us, give us your surname there Michael yeah we'll get in touch uh, right, here's some highlights for you on the OTB Podcast Network. Uh, football Daily, which is uh, daily football news from Phil Egan. Uh, Wednesday Night Rugby, of course, from uh, just last night, which was Roy O'Connor and Keith Wood. And uh, Gavin Casey talked about the Katie Taylor fight as well. You can follow OTB across social and subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network. Okay, we're turning our attention back to rugby. And I'm delighted to say our guest, our final guest on the show this morning is David Irwin, former Ireland and uh, Lion Rugby International. Uh, David, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Not too bad, lads. Um, 
your name came back into the public's consciousness as the Six Nations campaign rolled on and the players began to just speak about the the fact that yourself and, and Brian O'Driscoll and Craig Doyle were in talking and Paul Rice were in talking about Ireland's call and how the team is a very unusual thing in Irish cultural life. Um, can, you, can I spool you back to the bit where you got invited in? How did that come about? Um, well, initially it actually occurred about 18 months ago, nearly two years ago. Uh, I think Andy Farrell had watched uh, Craig and Brian's documentary, Shoulder to Shoulder, and thought that it really hit a note in terms of uh, you know getting the guys to think about you know Ireland's call in particular and what players over the years had gone through to play for Ireland, particularly during the, the Troubles up north. So Andy Farrell was very keen in fact, he got the whole team to watch it about maybe 18 months ago. And then there was a couple of dates set to actually have that meeting. And then because of COVID, it was postponed several times. Maybe fortunately in the end, because ultimately it was uh, we had it the Monday leading into the, the French game. So it was sort of Andy Farrell's idea, I think, initially. Uh, and say so I was delighted to go in with, with Brian and Craig and, and Paul, obviously, and uh sort of discuss the documentary and, and some of the topics around it. Um, did you have a plan about what you were going to say? Because 18 months of stewing on, actually, I need to say something that's going to be interesting here to a, you know, a, a bunch of a, a different generation. And also I need to make sure that I catch it, the note right, particularly in the week of a game against France. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I didn't really have any preparation for it. I mean, I just sort of spoke from within, from the heart, so to speak. I, I was slightly worried because I knew Paul Ruse was speaking first, and he's obviously a professor of Irish history in UCD, and I thought, jeepers, I, I, my Irish history is maybe not particularly strong because we, we don't get taught Irish history up here, or certainly I didn't. So I, I actually got a few books out and read a bit, but I, I was relieved when we arrived at the meeting that, that Brian O'Driscoll was equally as nervous about any Irish history because he didn't seem to know much about it either. But, I mean, it wasn't that type of talk. It was more of the history of Irish rugby that Paul was sort of reflecting on. And particularly the fact that, you know, in partition 100 years ago, rugby was one of the, the sports that stuck to an all-Ireland sort of uh, basis in terms of the team. It didn't split into North and South and so on. So well, Paul gave a bit of that sort of background history. And uh, so I sort of got off scot-free in terms of any other Irish history. I'm sure the the talk, David, had a significant impact for the for the players not born maybe within Ireland who weren't aware of some of the history, the likes of of Bundy Aki and and Mac Hansen and, and Rob Herring, um, James. The likes of the sort of what you might call the overseas players that play in the Irish yes. team. I think you know it probably meant less to them, although I think they were still very intrigued and, and interested in, to to listen to what what we were saying, but also what some of his fellow players were saying. I mean, Johnny Sexton and James Ryan in particular were quite involved in the discussion and I think you I mean most of the players in the room were sort of similar age to my kids and gladly my kids and, and obviously the players in the room didn't know an awful lot about the troubles uh, because it wasn't a particularly pleasant time to be, to be living through so uh, they, they got a bit of an idea obviously from watching the documentary but clearly I suppose I gave them a wee bit more insight into what it was like playing rugby for both Ulster and Ireland at that time. It's funny because some of the players, I mean, all of the players sing Ireland's call every week but uh, before a game, but they probably didn't didn't realise the background to it when it was brought in in 95, that it was brought in for a reason, to be more inclusive. So I'm sure that was something that, that a lot of players picked yeah. up on as well. 
I mean, I think probably initially some of the players within the Irish setup sort of felt that the shoulder to shoulder was a bit intrusive on their on their own sort of national anthem as such. But if you actually take time to sort of listen to the words and sort of think about it, it, it obviously makes a lot more sense. And clearly, it is very inclusive. I mean, you know, the, a lot of the words in it are although people just sing them and enjoy the, the crack of the song. I mean, you know, you know. Together, standing tall and shoulder to shoulder in the four proud provinces of Ireland, you know, it is quite powerful in terms of mo- motivation and making you realize, you know, sort of, I suppose, where we've all come from and, and we're all working together and we're much more powerful and much more strong working together. And obviously, in the context of the talk we did, obviously, a bit more insight into what, say, players in the past, not just me, but quite a lot of different people have had to go through in terms of even just training for Ireland or representing Ireland and some of the risks that people had to take, particularly some guys that maybe were in the security forces at the time and so on. Uh, It's obviously such a a long and important section of Irish rugby life. There was another documentary on after the England game about when England did come over, I think it was 72 and the the troubles were at their absolute height. And, um, you know, the English Rugby Union they showed up the the Welsh and the Scottish didn't come for that game and I think yeah. maybe sometimes we forget that when the, the rivalry is as intense as it is I, I guess that was the 70s your part of the story is, is actually the 1980s and the build up to the World Cup in 1987 which is supposed to be this uh, global outpouring of rugby crossing into the mainstream for the first time that um, the whole world comes together and I, I think people are generally familiar with your story but I'd say that a lot of people are still discovering it for the first time did you talk in detail about what actually happened in 1987 to the team yeah talked a bit about it I mean created a few clips of the documentary one of which was obviously the the bomb event at Killeen at the border Uh, but probably majority of them didn't really know much detail about what had actually happened I mean clearly it's the sort of thing that you could spend a long time talking about but yeah, I did go into a bit of detail about, as you say, it was the first Rugby World Cup, very exciting time, as it would be in any sport, in a sort of a World Cup-type competition. And uh, obviously myself, Nigel Carr and Philip Rainey were driving down for a training session about a month before the World Cup. And unfortunately, at the, at the border, which uh, doesn't really... It, well, the, the road that the bomb was on was, was the old road, so you don't actually drive past it now when you're going north to south generally in the motorway, but clearly we were caught up in a, a, the IRA, just a car bomb at the side of the road, and just as their so-called target, Judge Gibson and his wife, were, were passing this car, we happened to be passing going in the opposite direction, and clearly get caught up in, in, in the bomb explosion. Um, miraculously, none of us were killed, um, and even myself, which I was closest to the bomb, it was on my side, I think the hair in my head was singed badly. The hair in my right arm was singed, and I had a scrape in my nose. And that was it. Nigel Carr, unfortunately, had a lot more serious injuries. He was in the passenger seat beside me. He had broken ribs, broken ankle, ruptured spleen, various, you know, quite a list of, of injuries, which unfortunately in the end kept him out and, of the World Cup, and he missed it. Um, Philip Rainey was, was essentially okay as well, but one went to the World Cup. So it was a fairly traumatic incident clearly for us and I think it, it suddenly opened the, the eyes of a lot of the guys in the squad generally particularly the guys down south because 
as I explained to the Irish team, you know, pre-France game, I said, like, it's a, it's a wee bit at the moment, like us watching all the stuff on, on the TV about Ukraine, you sort of look at it and you say, oh, that's terrible. Oh, God help them, blah blah And back in the days of the Troubles, I'm sure probably that's when people in the UK, people down south thought as well. They saw it on the news every night, unfortunately, and they thought that's terrible. But they didn't really know, you know, what it was like or, or what effects it could have on people. So it was certainly an eye-opener, I think, for a lot of them. And I was sort of pleasantly surprised that they took so much out of it and that it really seemed to affect them. And I was certainly quite relieved on the Saturday down at the French game to see them. And clearly people have remarked about Johnny getting very emotional in, in, in the shoulder to shoulder. But I think the whole team were. And I think hopefully they can keep that going and... Uh, take it on in the, the Rugby World Cup this year and hopefully it'll pay dividends. David, I think I've heard you describe before the, that moment of the explosion as being like a like 100 flash bulbs or light bulbs going off at once. Um, and, and you mentioned uh, uh, Morris Gibson, the senior judge, and his wife, uh, both of whom were killed, sadly, in this £500 uh, yeah. bomb. Like, Were you aware immediately how serious this explosion was? I think... <laughs> In an unusual way, sometimes you always imagine certain situations in life that you obviously hope that you'll never be in. For example, being on a bomb. For example, falling out of a plane. What would it be like as you fall out of the plane? You know, that type of thing sounds a bit odd. but So, I mean, although I had heard lots of bombs going off around Belfast, and particularly the school I went to, Belfast Dents, which is right in the middle of the city centre, I mean, during the Troubles, there's bombs going off nearly every day. Some pretty close to the school, so... The sound of a bomb going off, I was quite familiar with. And, and when it happened to us, I say, clearly, it, <clears throat> it just comes out of the blue. Obviously, you're not expecting it. So, as I, as you described, you know, it was huge amount of white light, uh, enormous noise. And in that split second, time, as people always say, seemed to slow down. And I, and I remember thinking, there's a bomb under my car. Why has my car been blown up? I don't understand this. Clearly, I wasn't aware. As you're driving along, I probably wasn't really that aware of the car coming towards me, and I certainly wasn't aware of the car parked at the side of the road. We were just chatting about the World Cup that was coming up later that month. So it all happened clearly, as you would expect, very quickly. And, and within what was probably a second or two, my car had literally stopped, still facing the same way, still in the same lane as if I'd literally done an emergency stop. And it was only then that I sort of realized uh, when I looked to my right, I saw a huge crater in the road. And when I looked to my left, I saw obviously Nigel injured beside me, sort of semi-conscious. And through his window, I saw the other car, which was basically an inferno of flame internally and two vague shadows in the front seat. I initially thought it was a police car. Clearly, I sort of checked myself over to make sure I didn't, I wasn't missing any limbs or any significant injuries. So it all basically happened very quickly. And then after that, there was general chaos at the scene because obviously cars in front and behind both myself and the judge's car were sort of had veered off the road. I think there was three or four nurses from the south of Ireland who were traveling north, ironically, for the first time to some nurses' awards dinner, and they had veered off the road, and they were sort of 
running around screaming and you know it was just chaos at that point but I suppose maybe with my medical background I don't know I just got into sort of uh, I suppose safety mode and, and, and started to proceed to try and get Nigel out of the car and Philip out of the car and, and I directed a, a lorry to go up the road to inform the police and blah blah I, I didn't realise at that time that the guard of Shikona had escorted Judge Gibson to about 100 yards short of where the bomb was and the RUC were 100 yards up the road waiting to escort him the rest of the way so they were actually already there but observing from a distance because clearly, you may recall in those days, you know, a, a second bomb frequently could have been set to sort of booby trap any of the security forces. So say it was a bit surreal and chaotic, certainly for at least 10 or 15 minutes straight afterwards. When do you come back to yourself and, and kind of start to realise that you've been through the experience where, where the immediate kind of medical training passes and you're like, OK, kind of need to start dealing with what's happened? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, obviously there was a, a probably a good hour or so after the bomb where, you know, Nigel and Philip went off to Dizzy Hill Hospital. I tried to sort my car out. I spoke to a few people. I rang my mom. I rang Wonders Rugby Club in Dublin to let them know clearly we wouldn't be there for training. Uh, I... Trevor Ringland, Hugo McNeil and Sid Miller were actually about maybe five minutes behind us on route south <clears throat> and they were diverted around, not past the actual incident, but they were, like all the traffic, they were diverted through the countryside around the incident. They didn't know at that point that it was obviously us. So um, clearly, as I say, we weren't going to training. I rang my brother, Alan. He came down and picked me up. The car was obviously destroyed. Uh, that was, I think that was was Saturday morning or Sunday morning? I can't remember. I think it was maybe Sunday morning. Monday morning, I was back in my GP trainee post as normal, doing my normal job and just continued on in my normal way. And um, I think some maybe 15 years later, 20 years later, I was out in the town in Dublin with Rob Jones and Dean Richards, the English number eight after, I think it was the Peace International that Trevor Hugo McNeil had organised and uh, we were out that night and they asked me something about it and it, it sort of just hit me then. So every now and again, it was sort of, it would just come to the surface. But generally, you know, I think I, I just look at it that we were very fortunate, obviously unfortunate to be in it in the first place, but fortunate to have come through it the way we did. And um, to say, obviously, that's why you know, Brian wanted to take me back down to Colleen for the for the documentary, which is where we, we filmed the scene, literally where the bomb had been. So I think I've dealt with it okay, but sometimes you just have to get on and hope that things sort themselves out. I do. I do. I'm very interested in, in your perspective on this because I often wonder about the shared trauma and the ability for us now to process it and maybe in the processing of it, we find some way to all be a little bit closer in our understanding of the possibilities for us as a, as a, as a country, you know, as, as people who share the island. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think an incident like that certainly opens up lots of doors of thought within your own head and other people's heads and 
sometimes hopefully you know a lot of people change their opinions then and sort of think oh that's terrible that shouldn't happen we need to do whatever we can to make sure it doesn't happen again and so on so on i mean i think at the time obviously probably more so sort of 70s early 80s at the time obviously there's lots of incidents in the north and i was one of one of many just or we were one of many um but i think you know it was incidents like that and, and all the others that you know ultimately led to i suppose people saying like we're fed up with this something needs to be done and obviously you know the Irish agreement sort of came in towards the end of the, end of the 90s eventually and so on so on and obviously since then things have been relatively normal up here uh, compared to what they were so um as i say i certainly found it i suppose i found it therapeutic talking to the guys in dublin uh, i think they equally find it uh, fascinating and hopefully motivating and whatever else other you phrases you want to use for, for them even though as i say some of them were maybe maybe not even born at that time or from further fields like like bundy and mac hansen people like that but it certainly made them think seriously about what it all meant in terms of them to the jersey I suppose that's why we're we're speaking to you as well, David. Is that tomorrow's the twenty five years since the Good Friday Agreement, and and as you say, a lot of p- young people nowadays of a certain generation won't be familiar with with the troubles whatsoever. They just weren't alive to to experience it. Um, is that one of the reasons why you feel open and I, I guess compelled to to speak about your experience as well of that incident in eighty seven? Because I guess that, that famous quote that's in Auschwitz as well. Those who, who uh, cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it and that's an important lesson for young people as well yeah I mean I think it's important for everybody nowadays particularly people that didn't live through the troubles to be aware of what happened and, and, and probably to be more aware of I suppose, why why the troubles happened and as I said when I, when I heard I was doing the talk I did do a bit more reading up particularly about sort of Irish history and I mean like 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 the history of old countries, it's quite complicated. And the further back you go, the more complicated it gets. And you think, well, who, who, who came from where and who legitimately owns this or should live there, do that or whatever. But at the end of the day, no matter where you're from or what part of the world you're in, people have to live together. And I think there's more important things in the world at the moment in terms of keeping the world itself going rather than the conflict within certain countries or certain parts of certain countries. Um uh, as I, uh, you know, I keep talking about the, the movie Sliding Doors, particularly with regards to the incident at the border. You know, a couple of traffic lights here and there, a couple of things here and there, and we may not have been in the bomb, but it turned out that just the way things worked out, we were. And uh, as I say, it, it clearly changed my pers- well, not changed my perspective because I've been sort of experiencing the troubles for a lot of years, but it certainly change the perspective of a lot of people particularly down south within that rugby setup. Yeah, I've no doubt and uh, I, I can only imagine how difficult it is sometimes to talk about this and you've been really good with your time this morning um, and it clearly had an impact on the players and I think the fact that that had such an impact is continuing to ripple out as the conversation, we learned a bit more about what happened and um, I know like uh, a lot of people in the room were kind of saying it was just for the room but then the players started to talk about it unprompted and that has kind of fed into this conversation about Ireland's call and um, and why we kind of need something to help us all yeah. bring it together. Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
that, as I say at the beginning, there's probably a lot of people, particularly down south, and, you know, who maybe certain different views or thought, oh, why are we singing that song? That's just it. He's the ones from the north type thing. But I think as time went on, and particularly more recently, you know, people sort of suddenly realised that it is actually very inclusive and it is very representative of, of the whole island of Ireland and the four provinces. And as I say, if you look at the words, they are quite motivational and fair play to Phil Coulter when he, when he wrote it. Uh, I mean, even when, when you sort of think of you know, the line, you know, come the day and come the hour, you know, that, that could be the World Cup final this year. You know, it's sort of, you can really, I mean, obviously the Irish team are very, very uh, well prepared in most ways, but fantastic team. Uh, and it's sometimes, you know, these be small motivational things. I mean, you just add that on to the top of all their other preparation and so on can, can make a difference and hopefully it will down the line. And, uh, I think certainly, this year of all the years in the World Cup, Ireland, you know, they, they, they've always gone into the World Cup with great hopes and, and, and tended to maybe fall away, but at the, not the first hurdle, but at, not, you know, not progress as far as they should have. But I mean, clearly there's pressure on them this year to, to do well as number one team in the world, which is incredible for a, for a country this size. But I think it, it just shows you the, the, the power and the strength of the sort of, uh, Feeling within Ireland, particularly in sport, not just rugby, Gaelic, hockey, soccer, you know, boxing, you name it. I mean, we, we fight above our weight in, in a lot of things, particularly in sport. And hopefully, as I say, this year in the World Cup, we'll be able to uh, get out of a very, very difficult group and, and progress on in the competition and ultimately bring back the, the Holy Grail, as I say. Well, if that happens, you can definitely say that you played your bit, uh, David. It's been fascinating listening to you. Thanks so much for yeah. being so generous with your time. No worries. It's uh, David Irwin there, um, former Ireland and uh, Lion, uh, talking to us about talking to the team in the week of the France game. Um, so, yeah. They can uh, definitely dip into the likes of that, can't they? Like, maybe in September, or like they'll, they'll think back to the, the likes of those talks and take little bits from them. Because uh, it's just an incredible story, uh, and I don't know if some people watching would have heard heard of that story before. Some won't, because Nigel Carr, like who was probably the most badly injured of the three lads, like he was one of the best open sides in the world at the time, like and and didn't get to play in the World Cup later that year in '87. Um, of course, they were lucky to be alive at, at the end of it, but it's just an incredible story, and and probably highlights why we're talking about it as well. Good Friday Agreement, 25 years on, such an important moment in, in this country's history. So. Really inspiring uh, individual, David Irwin. Um, this is our last OTBAM before next Tuesday. Um, so join us next Tuesday for our Gillette Labs performance rankings. Sarah Donovan uh, reviewing Kilkenny Limerick. Mars Brosnan talking about the weekend's football. We've got the Ireland Women's National Team games against America. One of them will be down in, in the books. There'll be Champions Cup. There'll be Premier League. A Masters reaction, which may still be going on next Tuesday. We shall see, depending on the weather. Uh, right now, we're going to play out with Tim Vickery on last night's show. With Joe Malloy. Happy uh, Holy Thursday, if that's one of your things. Uh, Spy Wednesday. Spy Wednesday. Ash, no. What? Is it? What, the, <laughs> what? All, the, all the days have names, right? Does Ash, is Ash Wednesday a different day? The Evangelist, where the, that was the name I was looking for. To put a tin hat on it, to say thanks very much, and a nice little bow. Uh, happy Enjoy Easter. Yeah, Enjoy yeah. the chocolates. OCB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.